inquiries about developing a culture where kids get sort of searingly curious in a critical way, like asking questions about the information that they encounter. And that's something we really try and help them learn to do better. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 15 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Kath Murdoch is a well-known and hugely popular teacher, writer, university lecturer and consultant who has worked for many years with students and teachers in schools all over the planet. The author of some 15 books and innumerable articles and blogs, including the best-selling The Power of Inquiry from 2015, Kath is widely respected for her work in the field of inquiry-based learning, in which she has taught, researched and published for well over 30 years. Kath began her professional life as a classroom teacher in Melbourne, Australia, where she still lives. Her fascination in how students constructed their understandings and her interest in the way questions and big ideas can drive the curriculum soon led to a passion for integrative and inquiry-based methodologies. Kath's work on cycles of inquiry is now central to curriculum frameworks all over the world, including but not limited to the popular PYP, the Primary Years Programme, which is the International Baccalaureate Curriculum for 3-12 to year olds. In fact, so popular is Kath's work in the field of inquiry learning that she was recently described to me by a teacher in an international school as the Beyoncé of the PYP. So I know a lot of people are really looking forward to this episode, and I strongly suspect that you won't be disappointed. This is a searching, uplifting and often amusing conversation that I, for one, enjoyed immensely. Before we dive in, a couple of quick notices. If this conversation leaves you wanting to learn more about inquiry learning, I heartily recommend starting with Kath's excellent website and blog. I'll put a link in the show notes. Kath also publishes one of the best newsletters I've ever read. She has a lovely, intimate way of writing. It's like receiving a beautifully crafted letter from an old friend. Kath self-publishes her books, and so they aren't always easily available online. If you're interested in reading Kath's seminal work, The Power of Inquiry, there are a series of links in the show notes detailing where you can get hold of it in various parts of the world. Kath is also currently working on a new book about personal inquiry, The more I learn about self-directed learning, the more I find myself applying these ideas in my personal life as well as professionally, so I'm really looking forward to that one. Kath is also a member of the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the thriving community of innovative educators that has grown up around this podcast. If you want to be like Kath, you can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app and searching for Rethinking Education. On which note, listeners, some exciting news. In the coming weeks, we're going to launch a series of what we're referring to as Rethinking Education Campfire Conversations. In contrast to the podcast, which as you know features in-depth, largely pre-planned conversations with individuals, the Campfire Conversations will be shorter, more spontaneous group conversations with different guests joining us each week as we rethink education using an appreciative inquiry approach. If you aren't familiar with appreciative inquiry, 
you're in good company because I speak of it with the zeal of a recent convert. Put simply, or the way I see it at least, appreciative inquiry is a framework for changing the world from the ground up by working through five stages, define, discover, dream, design, and deliver. Or, if you like to get your hippie on, as Kath memorably puts it in this podcast, you can refer to the final stage as destiny. These campfire conversations will be live streamed on Saturdays at 12 noon UK time, and they'll also be recorded for posterity in case you aren't able to join us live. We would be absolutely delighted if you would join us and if you would join in with this urgent conversation. Can we rethink and reform education in such a way as to alleviate unnecessary suffering and perhaps even to increase our chances of surviving this incredibly tumultuous century? Can education save the planet? And can you roast a marshmallow by holding it up to YouTube? Only time will tell, listeners. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now and hand over to an earlier version of me in conversation with the one and only Kath Murdoch. Murdoch, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you, James. Lovely to be here. I think it makes sense to start with inquiry, which um, I think that you described your, when we spoke last week as being the thing that you've that you spent most of your life doing, um, <laughs> and it's the thing that you're, you're that you're the best known for. And you've written many uh, books and blogs, and you know you're very widely known for this. So, although I'm a little bit aware of inquiry learning I'm in no way experienced in this um to the extent that you are so can we just start with a with an absolute like inquiry learning 101 what is yeah. inquiry learning hmm I thought you might ask me that question James and it's a question obviously that I get asked a great deal and each time I'm asked it I have to take a bit of a breath I think now actually what is it because it's both really simple and really complex. So if I go the simple path, in essence, in quite, I mean, when you say you're a novice, you're not. You're a human being. So in fact, you are an experienced inquirer. You've been doing this since the day you were born. It's how we come to make sense of the world around us. Um, you know, in terms of of the school context, I guess that in its most simple form, it's a, a process that invites our students to primarily to investigate, to find out, to figure out, and we also hope to make meaning, although I guess you could say even simpler than that, it is just inquiring in order to find something out. Um, and it's often, but not always, driven by a question, a desire to have something resolved or, or figured out. And that question might come from the learners, it might come from the educators or a combination of both. So that's the simple version of it. Um, and I think it's really important to keep in mind that investigation uh, you know, trial and error, research, testing something out is, in fact, at the core of it. 
But I also want to say that it is much more complex and nuanced than that. So it's it's a stance at its at its most powerful, I think. Inquiry is a way of being as an educator, and it's a way of being as a learner, a way of being in the world. You bring this really curious uh, disposition. I remember hearing a a lovely um, talk by the author Amy Tan years ago, and she said, as an author, one of the ways that she becomes inspired to write is that she feels she walks the world with questions in her head. And I think in many ways, a strong inquiry educator walks the world or perhaps walks their classroom with questions in their head. You know, we see um, we see our students as inherently capable, curious, competent learners, and we see ourselves as capable, curious, competent educators. So it's it's a way of being, it's a culture in the classroom. It's a pedagogy, so I, I believe that it's a way of teaching as well as a way of learning. And then, of course, there's an, a layer to it that is about design. So it's also a kind of uh, uh, you, you can have what's well, I'm, I'm often associated with an inquiry cycle or a framework, so this process that helps learners move through a series of kind of um, moves um, to go from, you know, one not understanding something particularly deeply but wanting to, to a place of deep understanding. Um, yeah, so there's many layers to it, mm. uh, which, which is why it's kept me busy for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. And so if we think about what this looks like in the classroom, it's obviously, you know, the, the name inquiry sort of suggests questions. You mentioned questions a few times. Um, but you also said, when we spoke last week, you said something about how what happens in many classrooms is like kryptonite to inquiry where it's the sort of like sit down, be still, listen, uh-huh. answer questions, don't ask them and so on. And so yeah. what does it look like in the classroom? Well, it looks like many different things. And I should preface what I say in terms of what it looks like with the fact that my the bulk of my experience um, over the last 35, 36 years of working in education has been in the in the primary setting, so from four-year-olds through to 12-year-olds. It's absolutely where my heart lies. So when I share what it looks like, I'm predominantly sharing my experience in the primary uh, sector. Right. But, you know, I guess there's so many ways that it um, manifests, but it looks like learners and educators um, working together. It looks energetic in a good way it looks it looks alive and it sounds alive it sounds like deep robust interesting conversations between kids and between between learners and educators uh, it looks like a lot of teacher dialogue with other teachers um, it what it doesn't look like is a highly scripted um, performance it probably mm, it I don't I it doesn't look chaotic. It has a reputation for being 
uh, chaotic. You know, often people say to me, oh, I just don't think I could handle the, the chaos if I used that approach. And I'd have to say, I hope that if you walked into the classrooms that I'm privileged enough to work in, you would see and feel um, energy, but not, not chaos. You'd see and hear a lot of interaction, people coming together to figure things out together. Mm. And you'd see, and you'd see quiet. You know, I'm see quiet. You'd hear, you know, you'd hear. It, it's not all kind of lively investigation and hands-on. There's spaces that are peaceful and quiet and reflective and individual as well as collaborative. Yeah. Okay. So you're painting a picture of something that is very multifaceted, and it's not. I can see why it's not easy to answer the same question in the same way every time you asked it. Um, no. So would it be fair to say that it is at least in part a sort of like a bottom-up approach to curriculum design? Yeah. Yeah. It's often described that way. I mean, it is. You know, it rests on uh, constructivist theories of. Um, Thinking about and understanding learning, um, it rests on that notion that the learner is the one that that does the learning, and that the role of the teacher is to design learning experiences that uh, that power that up, that enable that construction to happen. Um, and yeah, bottom up, um, I think it's a really interesting idea. It's it, you are constructing with the learner whilst keeping your eye on the horizon. So as a teacher, you have a big picture in mind, um, but you're not always sure how you're going to get there. And that's the thrill of it. That's that's the, the joy and the challenge. When you say keeping your eyes on the horizon, does does that mean keeping your eyes on on the on the, the the top down aspects of the curriculum, if you like, on the things that you that you sort of want to want to be learned or that you want to cover? Well, you have to be pragmatic. So I, yes, yes, and also no. Um, the ideal for me is that I can take the curriculum and. I do this on a daily basis with with um, with teachers, and we look at what it is we are expected to help children come to understand. And in Australia, our, our the Australian curriculums, you know, it's not too bad. We've got some really good, solid um, conceptual understandings and some important content. And I think it can be really helpful, actually. So what we do is use that, but but in saying that, we try to make sure that when we're having conversations about how we might help students come to that understanding that we are indeed talking about understanding. So we try not to use the curriculum, and it can be used this way. You can indeed do the cover the curriculum thing, i.e. the checklist of content descriptors um, and do little bits and pieces and activities to cover it. Or you can say, "Where's where are the concepts in this? What are the big ideas? And so a big part of the design work that we do, and gosh, we're not alone, this is this is stuff people have talked about for years and years, 
is in fact my probably most commonly asked question around the planning table is what is it that we hope the children will come to understand as a result of this journey of inquiry we are embarking on whether that's one that we are projecting or whether it's one that has bubbled up out of play or an unexpected teachable moment that's driven by curiosity they're often the best inquiries um yeah but the horizon is well, it's twofold. The horizon is both the conceptual understandings and the horizon for me is also, and this is where your work and my work, um, have, you know, uh, we have in, in common, the horizon is also what we hope we can help our students come to learn about themselves as learners through this process um, and, and about learning itself. So you have this lovely dual carriageway um, but both both of those things, you know, we, the, the what is it about the, the discipline or indeed the um, multitude of disciplines we've got in this inquiry journey that we're working towards and how might this, to use Guy Claxton's lovely terminology, how might this build their learning muscles? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and we that, that came up in the last episode that I um, had with um, Rachel McFarlane. We were talking about the language of learning muscles. And I know that some people, some people sort of recoil at that phrase. But um, I used to find that. The, oh, the, really? The, the, yeah, I think just because. Why? Just because. I don't know. I think it's partly because it's anatomically you know like it doesn't make any sense like the the, the brains aren't okay. the brains aren't muscles and uh, but i think that it's oh. maybe partly because of the way that in the past sometimes learning to learn has been has been implemented what was really interesting talking to rachel in the last episode was that she implemented it in a very smart way where it wasn't imposed in a top-down way on the teachers it was like it was grown bottom up it was a, a sort of an inquiry approach to to teaching if you like and i'd, I'd like to come on to that by the way Sure. Um, but in some schools, people have been told you must have a learning muscle in every, you know, as a learning objective, say, in, a, in every lesson. You know how schools can sometimes just be a bit like mm -hmm. di didactic sometimes. Yeah, um, turn it so, into a program. Mm. Yeah. So I think that maybe some people have had bad experiences with this. But in my experience, kids really like that language of learning muscles. I was going to say the metaphor works, I think, it really for, does. for children yeah. and and you can extend it, you know, because there's the whole with muscles, if you don't use it, you lose it. So it's also about, okay, well, if we want to build our capacity to be great thinkers, we've got to practice thinking and we're going to be weaving that into this lesson or this, you know, and we're, I must say when we're designing these these learning experiences with and for students we we try to be really explicit about that mm, yes and and it also gets across the idea that learning hurts sometimes you know <laughs> like going to yeah, the, oh, like, yeah, like yeah, going to true. the gym like, oh, like, oh, i hadn't thought of that i'm gonna i'm gonna weave that in thanks james <laughs> yeah. that's true well, that yeah, came good up, one. that came up in another recent conversation with ian gilbert where he was talking about you know like using thunks that that, that get the, yeah. the kids are always saying oh my brain hurts so you're making my brain hurt yeah. And, yeah, and like yeah. James Nottingham talks about the learning pit, you know, like sort of this Indeed. idea that you just say you have to get down among the weeds, and it's and it's frustrating, yeah. and it's not just that it hurts so much, but it's just like it it can feel uncomfortable, it can be unpleasant. You have to force yourself through the sort of the pain barrier sometimes yeah. in order to come out the other side. So it does it does run and run as a metaphor. I I really like it. 
Speaking of, you know, learning muscles and how it triggers some people, you, you're probably aware that, you know, inquiry learning has its critics. I'm sure that you've not- no. noticed. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Just, I just need to take a moment. Okay. I, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's... Yeah, mind blown. Okay, right. I can come to terms okay. with that pretty I'm quickly. Sorry to, but... be the, sorry to be the bearer of such devastating news. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll come on to that in a while because I think it's interesting to to look at that. And, you know, I really like there's a quote from Richard Feynman where he says, you know, if you're going to propose a theory or, or some sort of set of ideas, it's important to be as, as critical of them as you are, you know, like talking about the good things, right? And it can really help us to understand more about inquiry and also about other types of learning so it would be interesting to talk about some of that stuff but first I'm interested just to hear about you know you said that this is, is become your life's work how did you come to inquiry how did you come to sort of embrace these ideas so fully as you have done hmm uh certainly by accident rather than design um in that I don't think I I ever I didn't sort of sit down and go right I want to be known for inquiry, basically, none of that. Uh, look, in in some ways I feel I, I was just so fortunate um, in, when I did my undergraduate training as a teacher. I was at um, what was then Melbourne State College prior to it becoming the Institute for Education, prior to it becoming Melbourne University. But when I happened to be there at a time when there was a team of uh, academic staff that were, you know, I think back and think, I was so lucky. They were magnificent. And they, the way that they taught us were was very much by positioning us as inquirers. Um, and so I felt like I was steeped in the methodology, both in my teacher training and that not all of it, but certainly this this core group were amazing, um, and I learned I learned about this way of working with kids in my initial training. So it's not like I came out, um, you know, as a as a just replicating the way that I'd been taught. I had already been given this interesting insight into different ways compared to the ways that that I'd been taught. And I, it, it suited me down to the ground. Um, I mean, when I look back on how I was doing it in my early teaching career, it's you know, it's cringe material. It's not, it's it's inquiry light. Um, it was much more thematic, and you know, I had a lot to learn. But the essence of it, I think, started in actually in my training, and then. The other thing I think that happened that just kind of sealed the deal in those early teaching days was that I, actually one thing that happened in my training was um, one of these fabulous academics took us, I I majored in uh, early years, in my third year, early years education, and we had a lot of experiences. So we'd go off campus a lot and this fantastic lecturer, Joy Palettia, took us to Melbourne Zoo, which was a zoo that was renowned around the world for and still is for its education um, program. So here we were, these, I don't know how old are you, 19 or something, studying to be a teacher. 
And I walked into the zoo school and this educator, Frank Ryan, who later became a dear friend, he's, he's no longer with us, but he was amazing. And he had this snake coiled around his arm, gathered us into a circle and introduced us to Monty the python and <laughs> and proceeded to work his magic and it was a day that just made me think this is what I want this feeling for the kids that I teach and when I look back on it now what Frank was doing was engaging our curiosity um honoring our theories inviting our questions allowing us to certainly gain lots of important knowledge, um, but it was it was just a beautiful example of such high-quality teaching. And so that was a super inspiration, and I became really interested in environmental education in the field uh, more broadly. Then when I went into teaching, I never, every single year, I would have various creatures in my classroom quail, lizards, yabbies, rabbits, guinea pigs, hermit crabs, um, mealworms, worms. I was trying to make a list of them the other day thinking, heavens above, I probably wouldn't be allowed to do all of that now. But having that in my classroom, and I think I did it because I wasn't particularly good at classroom management in the early days. As soon as I brought animals into the room, everything was fine (laughs) because the kids were so interested and these the spirit of inquiry would just inhabit the learning space. So I learned about inquiry by watching the way children responded when they were engaged with these beautiful, authentic um, experiences, most often when it was to do with connection with the natural world. So getting them outside or bringing the world into the classroom. So I think asking what did it for me? And I've just realised I've talked for way too long. Um, but it was having great early models and inspirations in my training, lucky me. Having some examples in my training when I did, you know, pracs when I was out on teaching rounds of exactly the opposite of that. So that always helps, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. To get a sense of, ah, nah, you know what, I, that's what I don't want to be. And then in my early years of teaching, just seeing this glorious, um, I want to use the word aliveness that happens when children's curiosity and wonder is um, is is given a home. When when your classroom is a habitat for curiosity, learning learning is so exciting. Yes, and to the extent that I have used inquiry in the classroom, it's probably been through philosophical inquiry. So I came to P4C, Philosophy for Children, quite early in my career, and I absolutely loved it and love it to this day and it's it's funny because you know like inquiry it also isn't without its critics and re- recently in the UK they did a trial it's the most ridiculous thing they did a trial of philosophy for children and the, the education endowment foundation all their trials it always looks at to what extent does it improve reading and maths uh 
so they've just done this trial and they've done they've published and it's cost them 1.2 million and lo and behold sitting around in a circle and talking about philosophy <laughs> doesn't help you improve your reading and maths i was like man i could have i could have saved you 1.2 million pounds um that's not surprising and and it, they did a previous trial where they did find that P4C impacted on reading and maths. But if you look at the trial data, that it wasn't a good design of a trial. The control group had far um, higher attainment prior to the, the oh. thing starting. And so the intervention group, they call it regression to the mean, right? They're, just, they're, they're more likely to, because they've got sort of more distance to travel. So it's just ridiculous. Um, and people, people sort of don't really understand what the point of P4C is because mm -hmm. I don't know to the extent that this is happening in Australia, but all the extent to which you're aware of what's happened in the UK in recent years, but under the new Labour administration that was around from around sort of the mid nineties to around 2010, there was this big focus on skills. Um, and then and then the Conservative and a Liberal Democrat coalition government came in in 2010 and subsequently a Conservative administration. And the pendulum has swung really hard in the direction yeah. of knowledge. I'm getting that sense when I listen to your podcast. Right, because, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> it's like, what? oh, wow. I, I don't think it's quite the same here. But also it's hard to generalise because it also varies from state to state here. But, yeah, with, I certainly have got that picture from listening to the various conversations on your podcast. Yeah, I do I do talk about it a lot. <laughs> um, no, but so do your guests. It's not just do. But you've, I mean, most are based in the UK. So the yes. political landscape you're talking about is, is there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when when we're, you know, suggesting that, you know, it's a good idea to sit in a circle. So, so a philosophical inquiry session is where we sit in a circle, usually, not always. Mm -hmm. And you come up with a question. You can do it straight off the bat with a thunk, like I talked about with Ian Gilbert. Or you can go through this whole sort of process of, of generating questions and then working through them and voting for them and talking about what makes a good question. And that's useful work to do. And then you then you discuss it at length. And it might be, you know, what is love or it might be you know what would the world be like with no money or is life just a dream or what a, a really good one yeah. that we did once was is life just a war between all the animals you know oh, um, wow i know that what a great are, question i know and, what a great question and and um some people who are of a more traditional bent might say well that sounds lovely but what are you actually achieving in this? You're, you know, you're not helping them develop cultural capital. And what, one thing that I struggled with is that, like, because I was a science teacher and I used to come... And so, like, often, often philosophical questions would lend themselves to things about space, right? They would talk about, for example, like, I would show them a video of... You, you know that speech, The Pale Blue Dot? It's an excerpt from mm -hmm. Carl Sagan talking about that yep. famous photograph of the Earth from the other side of Saturn. <clears throat> Just this tiny pale point of light. And it's an incredible photograph. But the the kids would often talk about, for example you know, like parallel universes. And then they would talk about life being elsewhere within this universe. And they would get those two things mixed up, say. And I would find myself sort of going, ah, let me, I can help you here. I'm a science teacher and I'm just going to basically kill this conversation by giving you a 20 minute lecture on the difference between, you know, parallel universes. Let me and... just stop you right there, children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some of the early feedback that I got from my, you know, 
my mentors in the world of philosophical inquiry, they were like, that's not what you, that's not what this is about. You know, if you want to teach them about that, have a science lesson about parallel universes and life and planets, right? That's not what this is about. This is about facilitating a more open-ended inquiry. And it doesn't really matter that much if the kids are expressing misconceptions. This might not be the place to express that for them because this is about something else. Um, it's not about sort of necessarily developing their schema around, you know, the, how the solar system fits within a galaxy, fits within the universe. Say. We can do that elsewhere. And so that's something else. What is it that we're that we're achieving when we're working in an inquiry way? And I'm not saying that inquiry can't lead to rich knowledge. It absolutely can. But there is this something else agenda. And, you you know, you've talked about dialogue earlier, and I know you've written books on cooperative learning, and so cooperation is a part of this. But what is that something else that inquiry mm. does, that, that didactic teaching from the front, just tell them sort of efficient model of transmitting mm. curriculum content doesn't do? Mm. Before I answer that question, I need—I feel I need to say that it's a really important part of my thinking about inquiry is that I worry, of course, about the ease with which people quickly set up there's inquiry here and then there's this telling, didactic, explaining um, teaching over here. And I'd say that as a strong, you know, I bring a strong inquiry stance to my teaching, whether I'm working with children or with teachers, but included in my kind of palette of practices is direct instruction. You know, it's, it's there. And so there are times when the right the right move for the moment is to tell, explain, show, demonstrate all the things that we associate with that more didactic approach. It's just, it's not my go-to. It's not my default, this is what it means to teach. For me, this is what it means to teach is more the asking, the desi designing for learning so the kids are doing the heavy lifting, etc. Which we can come back to, but I just wanted to pick up on on that because I think before we before we talk about the the benefits, you know, the, the, what is it you get for this rather sophisticated and complex way of teaching? Because there's no doubt, no doubt in my mind at all that to do to use a more inquiry based approach well, you you've got to know your stuff. You've got, it, it's it's not. Not for the faint-hearted, James. It's not a. It's it's not you know. It's not a script. It's not something I can. Um, yeah, I'll just say that it's not a script. So when we do use it, it does have a lot of benefits. But it's it's not that it is completely. I don't want to separate or or or, or buy into that um, uh, unhelpful war between you know, the direct instruction versus inquiry. I, I get the, I get it, but I think it's unhelpful. Um, one of the things that, and this is not the question you asked me, but I'm going to take podcasty liberty and answer it anyway. Go for it. Um, uh, I, I think one of the, the beefs that I have is 
when people say, and I and I get it said a lot to me, oh look, we, you know, there's always, oh look, I think this is fantastic, you know, I, I gosh, I, what a what a beautiful way to work with kids, and I'm waiting for the but, and here it comes. But we 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 really believe in in explicit teaching, so we just you know, or or how how can I fit explicit teaching in with this approach? And my question is always, tell me what you mean by explicit. What help me understand explicit in the way? And what ends up happening is that whenever we have these conversations, we end up agreeing so much with each other about the importance of clarity, the importance of learners knowing what they're doing and why they're doing it, the importance of teachers having clarity in their own thinking. So when I think explicit, I mean, honestly, the many of the teachers that users that have got this inquiry-based pedagogy that I work with are the most explicit teachers I know. Um, you can walk into their classrooms and ask their kids, tell me about your learning right now. And those kids will be able to say, well, right now we're investigating this question and here's why we're doing it and here's what we're working on at the same time in, in terms of our learning muscles or whatever language they use. Um, and I'm going to be, uh, uh, you know, caricature this a little, but I would argue that some of the really strong direct instruction practices that I see or that I used to see, I'm not in that world much, but I would say lack so much explicit uh, teaching and learning. If I'm if I'm saying, here's what you have to do, kids, open up your book, go to this page, um, here are some questions you need to answer, um, I don't know, whatever it involves, when's, what's clear about that? You know, what what is it that the, if, if we're talking clarity of intention? So I think a, a strong inquiry-based teacher has really strong, a very strong set of intentions about why they're doing what they're doing. And the language that they use as they teach is so explicit. I have these beautiful teachers that I work with that work with five and six-year-olds and they use what we call big inquiry diaries or floor books. And with the children, they narrate the learning process. So they might say, hey, God, let's just come back together again. They might have a little small group saying, so what, what question did we start this session with? What did we ask ourselves? And let's let's write, let's tell the story of this lesson or tell the story of this moment. So you get this and they'll they'll narrate the story of the learning and then go back over that with this sophisticated meta language. Mm. You cannot get more explicit than that. Yeah. So I don't I don't buy inquiry learning isn't explicit. It's not explicit if you say to the children, hey, guys, what do you want to learn? Cool. Okay. Um, whatever question you've got, off you go. Um, I'll see you, yeah, I don't know, whatever the myth is. I didn't, that's not how it works in the places I'm lucky enough to work in. That's not explicit, but neither is um, here's the activity that you need to do and hand it up to me at the end of the lesson. This is really. I've gone on a little rant. I just ranted. <laughs> no. Right. I but... said to my rant, and I've 
already failed my intention, my learning intention, my podcast intention has not <laughs> eventuated. The my rethinking education <laughs> podcast is all about ranting. Um, this is fascinating, and it's really interesting. It's like about sort of the, the, like the word "explicit" seems to be this sort of like like in this contested territory. Because I would yeah. argue that you know, like lots of the stuff that I talk about with regard to learning to learn and metacognition is at least in part about about making uh, shining a light on what are yes. the invisible processes of learning and making them explicit right making because when you make them explicit you make them tangible and therefore yes. learnable you know like and this yes. whole idea that you can learn how to learn stuff effective learners are just doing some sort of process in their head and if you yep. can find out what that is do a think aloud get them to think out loud and we go oh i see what they're doing they're making metaphors they're yep. doing links they're using visual imagery whatever it might be let's share that and through so through making this explicit but when I spoke to, um, so recently on the podcast, I don't know if you listened to this one with a guy called Adam Boxer, who's um, a, an arch, arch traditionalist. And, and he says that he doesn't really like the traditionalist label. He prefers it. He would prefer it as to be, to be referred to as the explicit teachers. So it's interesting that there's this sort of like the, the people on the inquiry side, people <laughs> on the traditionalist side are trying to sort of to, to claim. I don't want to be on a side. I don't want to even be on a side. I want to, you know, I just feel that this whole framing, every time I hear it, I get, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you one of my, well, I'm not alone. It's almost Hallmark greeting card worthy now, but that, that famous Rumi poem, you know, that between right and wrong, you know, that there's a, there's, there's a field beyond and I'll meet you there. And I think I love that idea that, that actually uh, we, I did listen to Adam and I loved listening to it. I found it really stimulating. I think Adam sounds like a remarkable teacher. And um, we have some different perspectives um, and different emphases in our work, but he sounds to me like someone who really, really has the 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 well-being and the learning needs of of his students in his heart and that's what great teachers have first and foremost so I think I like playing in the field beyond partly because I'm a bit conflict averse but I also think that it's more helpful yeah so this was this was obviously a greeting card that had passed me by but you mentioned this last week <laughs> and i looked it up so in case people aren't familiar so it's a, a very short poem by rumi i'll share it quickly in case anyone hasn't heard of it it's called there is a field and it goes out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing that i love that word right doing there is a field i'll meet you there when the soul lies down in that grass the world is too full to talk about love that it's amazing isn't it just beautiful i wish i'd called this podcast the field beyond because that's that is a really neat way of encapsulating sort of what i'm hoping to achieve with these conversations um and something else that came up in the conversation last week talking about this trad thing you 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 said that if you if there were two teachers and one of them was doing <laughs> inquiry teaching 
but they were you know not doing it very effectively and they hadn't really they hadn't really you know got their head around it you said that it's hard to do it's not for the faint-hearted if they were making a bit of a hash of it and in the next classroom there was a traditionalist teacher who was just belting it out from the front of the room and running the room in a very sort of top-down way you said that you would much rather that your child was in the latter of those classrooms mm-hmm. almost said that <laughs> and, and I, I stand by it except that I think I probably used a couple of other of other really important words so if I was if I had but if I had to choose and I had a ineffective uh you know someone who really thought I'll give this inquiry thing a go but but really was not skilled at it and lacked passion okay and lacked passion so I'm talking uh I I I don't know if this anyway but a very poor example but still using some semblance of inquiry-based learning I'm not going to choose that teacher for my child over next door someone mm, I'm not going to say belting it out I'm going to say charismatically passionate about their learning area because we've all had those teachers. I've had them. I've had the the what we might describe as a traditional teacher, the up the front teacher who absolutely captivated me, from whom I learned so much because they cared passionately about their subject and cared about the children. So if if I was having to choose, I'm not going to choose something purely because of the methodology if the methodology is in really poor hands. However, I'm greedy. I want my cake and I want to eat it too. So I want passion, knowledge, strong knowledge and commitment to the the field. I suppose we're talking more secondary here. Um, And the skill of inviting the learners into the opportunity to do a whole lot more figuring out for themselves and to share the power and to be comfortable with instead of having power over having power for and power with the the students um i want that for kids does that make sense yes yeah it does yes Uh, it's a qualified choice (laughs) yeah thank you for for putting me straight on that um so let's get into some of these criticisms that people sometimes have, not necessarily of inquiry learning, but criticisms of anything that isn't traditionalism. It seems like traditionalists often sort of have the same sort of arguments against things that aren't traditionalist teaching. And we address some of these in our book as well. And one of them, so, so there was the famous paper that I'm sure that you're aware of, the, the Kirshner, yep. Sweller and Clark paper, which has become hugely influential in people's thinking. And it's got a very contentious what's the title of it is something like why direct or explicit instruction or, or is, is it explaining something about the failure of inquiry-based approaches or something that like that sounds isn't it? right yeah. or discovery i think i think the emphasis in it i haven't actually read it for a while hmm. i had 10 years as an academic but it was a long time ago and i don't op- operate so much in that space now um but I think the my my memory of it, I should have boned up on this, shouldn't I? But my memory of it is that the criticism was uh, against what they called discovery learning. And again, my memory may not be serving me well, but the criticism was against what sounded like an approach where you pretty much, it was hands off, right? It was just teachers as the kind of, 
I don't know, I'm not a fan of the guide on the side phrase, but teachers just saying, all right, you're going to discover it for yourself with little support, um, expecting kids to do uh, almost all of the heavy lifting. And I'm inclined to agree (laughs) that 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 could be really problematic. Um, Not so much with very young children, that's a different situation again. Um, But, you know, what I want to say about about criticisms. I actually wrote a two-part blog post about this a couple of years ago, which was what can we learn from the vo- those dissenting voices? Because there's always, isn't there? Don't you think, James, I mean, you did it in your book too, you know, that if you're not, I mean, goodness, if I wasn't open to some of these criticisms, I could hardly call myself an inquiry-based practitioner. Yeah. So it, uh, rather than approaching it defensively, I try to approach it with curiosity and the older I get the easier that is to do is there's always some kernel of truth in it and the kernel of truth in that one is that hey if you expect kids to figure it entirely out by themselves without providing um, support um, in any way you're abdicating your responsibility and I, I, I agreed Again, I don't know that many teachers that actually do that, but I yeah, agree. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I've just looked it up. The, the title of that paper, and it does speak to what you were just saying, is Why Minimal Guidance during... Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So minimal yeah, guidance. But, the, you know, the, 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 yes. already you're like, well, you know, the, 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 the picture that you just painted of inquiry teaching is not about minimal guidance stuff. This is not about no. just like stepping back and let the kids sort of flounder. So it goes, why minimal guidance during instruction does not work. An analysis of the failure of constructivist discovery, problem-based, experiential, okay. and, oh, the whole lot. and right. inquiry-based teaching. Yeah, they threw the net. <laughs> they threw it the all net in a big basket. Wide. But don't you even? <laughs> I mean, the thing that makes me curious is, and I and I'm not. I'm not a. You know, I, I don't consider myself a scholar, so I, I, I'm, this will be scoffed at. But any title that says doesn't work. Yeah. Almost sounds. It, it, it's like re- really, but for whom? In mm. what context? When? And we're talking about children. You only have to spend time with children to know that the whole. Didn't Dylan Williams say something about this in relation to research, um, in educational research, and why it is so complex? Because we are dealing with you know every child really is different and I know that we can get patterns and trends and so on but wow it all just doesn't work well my I guess my response to the most common criticism about the minimal guidance thing is that yes uh, we're minimal where a child needs that guidance and support and you're deliberately not giving it and they're floundering and they're floundering for too long um, where of course that's not going to work but what a great inquiry teacher does is um, understand. I always I have this image in my head whenever I think about this idea of releasing more power and more opportunity for more children to do more figuring out more of the time. And the image that I have in my head, weirdly, stay with me on this one. But it's a piano accordion. Is that a, no? What are the ones the squeeze boxes that go in and out like this? Yeah, an yeah. accordion. Yeah, accordion, yeah, yeah. So not the kind that you hold up with all the keys. <laughs> anyway, 
<laughs> I've got a really specific metaphor in my mind here <laughs> because it's like it's like you release and then you come back in and then you release and then you come back in. So minimal guidance is you do that really strategically. So in particularly in in primary teaching, one of our you know oft and most loved kind of um, uh, constructs for even a lesson is this notion of the gradual release of responsibility, right? And I think what I love to do is hold up alongside that, and it's not just me when I say. I hate that phrase. What I like to do is if I'm the only person in the world that does it. What many, many educators do is say, well, yeah, there's there's gradual release, but there's there's also what we might think of as rapid release. So so this is where the complexity and the sophistication of the approach works, right? So there you're saying, hmm, it doesn't work. Well, it won't work necessarily if you are releasing responsibility really rapidly for a task or a, a learning to which the, the children bring very little background knowledge or very little interest or no you know no um, experience and skills to it then then of course you're going to use a more gradual release model there but wow the number of times we've played with flipping that gradual release to a more rapid release where it's not that we don't guide, but it's more when do we choose to guide. So rather than I do it, we do it, you do it, which is your gradual release model, we flip it to how about you do it? And we pose a challenge, but come in once the children have had it. And the number of times we've just had our minds blown by what kids will do when we don't do too much of that, what people like to call front-loading don't like that term but yeah so i i've gone around in circles no no it's great and and i i absolutely um resonate with what you're saying when when we were doing the learning skills curriculum we would do that quick release thing quite often and we'd set them a, a mm. challenging task that would take like six weeks to do and we'd give them the brief and then go off you go and they would be staring at us like what like, i've got no idea how to even start to go about that and and some of them would some of them would just like really uh, really fly within that within that yes. you know environment and they'd be like making lists and they'd be organizing things and they just like uh -huh. would absolutely love the fact that they had this autonomy yeah and other kids would really flounder and that's fine right and like it's okay that like it's important that floundering is an important learning process in itself they need to know that they don't know what to do when they don't know what to do in order to start to figure out and if you throw them a lifeboat too soon then you're yep. sort of just making them dependent on you and you don't want to stand but stand back so and do so such minimal guidance that they have nothing to show for their time at the end of six weeks but like you say it's like and and i think i love that squeeze box analogy i love the idea <laughs> that you sort of that you come in but when we would come in we weren't sort of saying here are the answers that you're looking for we no, would no. come in with a coaching type conversation that's it you know and we would just help them to f to figure their own way yeah that's it, asking questions, stepping in, at, you know, that guidance, it's far from minimal, that guidance is point of need guidance. Mm. So that's you as an inquiry-based educator, being the inquirer, offering the opportunity, whether it's an opportunity to play, tinker, investigate, whatever you're doing to, to address a problem, and then 
our job, I think, is so much about noticing, really taking on that role of uh, now that I've released, my job is to listen really carefully, Mm. to observe really carefully and add to that the deep knowledge that I have of these students because knowing knowing who we are teaching is so important. So this very nuanced practice that means we will be stepping towards some students, stepping deliberately back from others. And, you know, the sophisticated inquiry teachers that I work with, if you were to go up to them, that might look like they are kind of being the guide on the side or just simply on the side. If you to go to them and say, tell me what's happening now, saying, okay, okay, so I'm observing this group over here. Here's what I'm noticing. I'm just going to give it another couple of minutes and then I'm going to be going over and just say, just checking what support they might need. But I'm not going to go over too soon. These kids, you know, they're, they're scanning. It's what's so lovely about some of the more open learning spaces that we've got too because you can have one teacher often doing that lovely conferring with individuals in small groups while another teacher is doing a lot of the scanning and the noticing and the observing and the documenting. Um, but I think it really it, it helps us learn to be inquirers as we teach, so this idea of teaching as inquiry. And I think when we start to do a better job of this, that is a way we can address the criticism that somehow we are abandoning the children to flounder in a sea of unknown. Um, And perhaps that has happened when teachers haven't been sufficiently supported to learn what your role is in that moment. You are not you are not taking your foot off the pedal. You're not, you know, you are you are on. You are I, I don't think I've ever worked so hard as I work in an inquiry-based session. Um, but if I'm not, I have to be what's what's that phrase that they use in mindfulness? You have to be intentional and stay attentive. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And um, and this idea of noticing, I know we talked about this last week, is mm. such a key part of this. And it's a way that you, both within teachers, you're talking about teachers noticing there, but also young people themselves, yeah. that, that when, yeah. you, when you have this inquiry type approach... Um, it opens up a, like a reflective space, right? So there's 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 sort yep. of there, there's there's the kid, and then there's the task or whatever it is that they're doing or the subject that they're studying, um, and sometimes they don't realise that there's a sort of that there's that there's an opportunity to open up a space and to say like oh like I wonder how this is going for me and yes. and therefore if you're really yeah. struggling with something instead of like the, the the classic thing would be a judgmental response. So he's like, "Oh, I I really didn't get that lesson. Therefore, I'm bad at maths, or I'm bad at French, or I've got a bad memory, or like I'm struggling here." If you open up this thing, when you're like, "Oh, okay, that's interesting, right? It's interesting that you struggled there. I wonder why that is." Yeah. So that that itself becomes yeah. an object of inquiry, and and um, and this is this is quite an emancipatory mechanism um for teachers to to start to think more you know critically and creatively about their practice 
for young people themselves and also just in life you know if you if you go to a therapist right like what's a therapist it's a some a point of reflective space that you can yeah. sort of you know open up yeah. and just think about yeah. you know how things are going and how you might do things differently uh, or better or less badly in the future yes um and so yes. this is a this is a very important aspect of what's going on here mm-hmm. i think i think that meta language the importance of the noticing can't be overstated. And I think perhaps, I mean, that article you're talking about, that's going back now and the data it's based on is quite some time ago too. I think, and same with some of, I think some of the data that Hattie used as well um, was perhaps we, I think we're better at it. You know, I think those of us that use this, that, that, that have in their hearts a, a passion for an inquiry-based culture in in the way that we work in schools. We've we've learned a lot, haven't we? We've learned a lot about um, the importance of the language that we use, of the the metacognition, and it's it's like those teachers I was describing before that are with those five-year-olds telling the story of the learning. And one of my favourite questions to ask kids and teachers and myself is, what are you noticing? And, you know, and to, to get kids in the habit of what are you noticing about what's happening with your learning or with in this moment, in our conversation, like even when you start to get a bit of conflict in the classroom and conflict of ideas, isn't it beautiful when you can say, hey, have you just, did you just feel that shift? Isn't that interesting? What are we noticing about what's happening right now? Or um, how is, now that you've found that out, how is your thinking about this changing? So these questions that invite even our very young learners to be self-aware and to grow that, that vital human resource it is, isn't it, of self-awareness and, and self-knowledge and I know that to perhaps some that don't uh, warm to this way of working, that all sounds a bit hippy-trippy. But actually it is, I would say, it's sophisticated and nuanced work that we do and really powerful. And you only have to read and listen to kids talking about their learning when they are in that kind of community, and I work, I'm lucky to work with lots of schools over extended periods of time, and oh my goodness, the children's capacity to think and talk about themselves as learners, um, it's quite something. Yeah, yeah. And this is about a, like a wider aspect of education, isn't it? Which is what's, you know, it's often been referred to as, you know, like educating the whole child or holistic education. But to my mind, it's just about like personal development, right? It's just about like self-actualization and helping them to, to find out who they are, to develop a stronger sense of identity and to stand in that identity and to grow with it and so on. And lots and that of that doesn't... stuff. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I just... No, go on. I was just going to say that does not have to come at the expense of knowing stuff, you know. So let's all, that's the other criticism of inquiry, which I don't, again, it's like, pardon? When people say, oh, yes, but knowledge is important. I go, uh-huh, yeah, because you've got, what do you think we're inquiring into? We're inquiring into 
the way the world works. We're inquiring into history, geography, science. We're inquiring into the content of those disciplines. We're inquiring the questions that we're asking uh, lead us to find out about the world. And so even when we're working towards a more conceptual understanding, you've got to get there via the knowledge. So again, this idea of its knowledge versus inquiry seems like a, it a, doesn't compute in my head. Um, yeah, so that yeah. would be the other criticism and I would say that's what we're actually inquiring into. Perhaps the only difference in some ways is that uh, we try and design learning experiences so that the children actually, A, are hungry to find that knowledge out. I want them to want to be interested in it and find it out. B, they're doing a little more of the heavy lifting to get there um, rather than simply having it all poured into them. So maybe it's more the the methodology than the actual content. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and to go back to that phrase of what works, you know, and and how things are measured in education research, mm. you know, lots of this stuff, you know, like self-actualization. <laughs> There's no exam that I'm aware of in self-actualization or becoming more uh, no. fully yourself or or, you know, ha- having some mind-blowing insights into how you learn, right? And um and you use that that language quite a bit that the children blow you away when you when you lift the lid off and you, sort of, you, you take the limits the limitations off what they can do yes that's stuff that isn't easily captured and i think that maybe part of the problem with looking at inquiry Mm. through through an education research lens is that it's sort of a diverge by its nature it's a divergent process right yeah in your ted in your ted talk um that you you've got lots of lovely little sort of clips of kids asking questions and such really good examples of questions but they go in a thousand directions, don't they? they like, do. That's what questions uh-huh. do. And exams and education research, like according to the EEF, everything's got to go through the filter of whether or not it improves English and maths results. And that's like a hopelessly inadequate method, you know, with a social science hat on. That's a hopelessly inadequate way of, of capturing the diversity of human experiences that yes. can happen inside a classroom or beyond a classroom. And so the what works agenda is is really problematic. Um, but so, so so there's a couple of other bits um, that I think it would be worth to look at because, because, like you say, this can be a fruitful conversation. And there, there's a few ideas that, that people of a traditionalist sort of mindset would say. So one thing is about cognitive load, right? So they sort of say mm-hmm. that we think that, we, that we've got an insight into the mechanism as to why it is that this sort of discovery-based, inquiry-based learning is inappropriate or, or ineffective or inefficient maybe is that they say that it's like that the young people because you've got a working memory that's got you know a limited capacity and that it can become easily overwhelmed and when the young people are over overloaded or overwhelmed that they can't sort of learn right that they they just sort of become frazzled right so that's that's one thing Another one is what you sort of mentioned earlier about how knowledge is foundational and that teaching knowledge, you know, in order to be in order to be able to think critically or creatively within a certain domain, you need to be very knowledgeable within that domain, first and foremost. And so, you know, we can't really teach critical thinking skills in a generic way that you have to sort of, you know, that you have to just know a lot about, for example, you know, interior design in order to be able to think creatively about how to design a room or a hotel, say, in a really, really interesting way. Um, and and there's there's a third thing where where people are often concerned about transfer, and they're like, you know, you can maybe develop these skills in certain places, but they don't necessarily transfer to other contexts. 
So let's quickly take those in turn. We'll do this as a quick fire round because I've got one eye on okay. the time and I want to get get yeah. onto some to some other, okay. other things. I'm so, nervous. I feel like I'm on a, I feel like I'm not a quiz show. You're, like, you're, where's my buzzer? Right. Where's my yes. buzzer? I'll get, okay. I'll get, make the lights go bright. <laughs> right, Kath Murdoch. <laughs> what are you doing with all this inquiry nonsense? Your time um, starts now. Yes, and we'll zoom the camera in slowly <laughs> like a master. I've got beads of sweat breaking out on my forehead <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> okay, so let's take that first. Well, we've sort of dealt with it a bit already, but like this idea that knowledge is foundational... Um, and that knowledge is really important and therefore teaching knowledge is really important and and time is limited you know the, like and and we've got you know and lots of people on the traditional side right they're coming from a really good place and they're saying you know yeah we need to close the disadvantage gap young people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds suffer the most that was a phrase that adam box used he was like young people mm, from disadvantaged yeah. backgrounds suffer the most when we use inefficient or ineffective teaching methods and so what we really need to do is to give them rich like knowledge rich curriculum so that they will know lots of stuff and that's like the best ticket to a future of prosperity and and whatever well-being um and so that idea that knowledge is foundational we've already talked about it a bit but do you have anything to add to that um i only that i guess i would want to say that yeah what i said before I, when we're engaging children in journeys of inquiry or these or quests or whatever we call them we are learning about the world we are we are using case studies we are this is how we get make sure we're attending to the curriculum at the same time as building up we hope um, a love for learning a curiosity about the world and a hunger to find out more but we we knowing is important but not enough and again I'm not the first person to say that either but yeah I get the ticket to like I get that argument I'm not sure it holds as strongly as it used to um I think that more and more and my my own kids are um you know they've they've left school but what I see in them and their friends is I'm seeing it play out everything we've been talking about that you need to have these you need to have a willingness and a desire to move into new spaces quickly to be able to problem solve. You need to know, as the adage goes, what to do when you don't know what to do. And I think if if kids come out of school with high marks and a and no interest or you know no hunger to learn, I'm, I'm not sure we really have we really set them up for success. Having said that, though, I, when we're designing for learning, I'm thinking about some of the schools I work in where we have children with a, a, a range of experiences and I'm always, always feel uncomfortable about judging background knowledge and background experiences and what's, what's seen as a high level or a low level or whatever. But we, one of the, the features of the way we design th- this work is we try and engage the children in really rich, authentic experiences so they go to places they connect with real people they tackle where where possible that the inquiries that they're engaged in are actually building background knowledge particularly in the early phases of the inquiry so that by the time we're we're saying to them okay so what is it that you are now interested in so the questions are more likely to bubble up 
once we've done some shared inquiry together. And I think this answers that concern about the cognitive load piece. It's not like we begin a journey of inquiry by saying, okay, guys, pick a question, go. It's actually what, let's do some sharing, I like to call it shared inquiry. Let's let's immerse ourselves in this together. We're still using an inquiry-based approach, but it's just building enough where we need to. Depends on what you're inquiring into, but where we need to, it's build it together and then we're ready to ask and, and be more independent. So I guess that's where the gradual release model would be uh, used over the rapid one. Mind you, get a group of five-year-olds together and say, and they've started to talk about one of them's broken their arm or a tooth has fallen out and suddenly everyone's talking about body parts and the body and how it works. And I don't have to, they're ready to go. They are ready to inquire. They've lived with their body for five years. They've got lots of questions. They've been thinking about it. So again, it's not a one size fits all. But I I hear that cognitive load um, argument and I think it's really useful for us to keep in mind and ensure that we are where, when necessary, we are building some strong shared experiences upon which we can, you know, that we can leverage for more independent inquiry. Yeah. That wasn't a rapid fire round. That was not quiz show material. I've noticed, at all. Kath, that like, I've, I've used the word in previous episodes. I've used the, the, the I think it's more of like a note to self. <laughs> I use the phrase rapid fire and it's never rapid fire. So it's just like, <laughs> it's the nature of uh, my question. I'm going to try though. No, I'm curious. I want to see if I can do it with the next one. Say the next one okay. and I'm going to be quiz show record go <laughs> okay well i just i'd like to respond first of all to just uh, on the cognitive load front you know you were talking about like about shared inquiry there and you mentioned dialogue earlier and that's something that's really interesting in the area of cognitive load if people are interested mm-hmm. in that as a mechanism there's some really interesting work being done in the field of cognitive load theory and to the extent to which that is enabled by collaboration right and that if you've got a group that's working in a really yeah. effective way that's sort of if you if when you get that magical moment where there's like a high mind and everybody's sort of plugged into yeah. this conversation then that's yes. another way that you can overcome the limitations of of, the, of a single yes. mind right because you're all plugged into something that's yes. greater than the sum of its parts yeah nice yep oh, i see that teaching teams all the time we are better together when we're designing and planning so the collaborative teams of teachers with various levels of experience i see that all the time yeah, and I'd like to come on to that as well, like the, the, the inquiry as it relates to teacher teachers' professional mm-hmm. development, because that's something that I'm really involved in in my work. Okay, the quick fire one was okay. Uh, I'm really going to do this. Do, like knowledge in a domain, so like so so generic skills. So like I know that you said before it might have been in the TED talk or somewhere else. You talked about how inquiry. Is a, is a process but it's, there's also a sort of a set of skills that sits around it right like that you that you need to be a skilled inquirer say and people people would argue that that skills uh, th- that there's no such thing really as generic skills there's another there's a famous paper by Tricot and Sweller um, about how domain uh, specific skills it's all about domain specific stuff and that, that, that there are no domain general things that are that are worth teaching they, they argue that that the, the extent to the extent that we have these domain general things that they're sort of biologically primary right that they're sort of hardwired into us like, like our ability to recognize faces like our ability to sort of to speak and listen with one another 
you know you don't have to teach kids how to speak and listen in in the same way that you have to teach them how to read and write you know and so the argument goes that you know that that we can't really teach things that are that are generic in any meaningful way that actually in order to be masterful in some domain you need to just know a lot about that thing sorry that was a really not a quick fire question <laughs> so it's me that has to be quick fire <laughs> i'm going to try and do it really quickly and just say um i my oh look I'm, i can't give you an academic response i can give you a um an experienced response or an experienced response of working with young children working it with primary kids that we just we I feel like we do this all the time. I mean, in it, we transfer or or build these transferable capabilities as a big part of our work. In a, in the Australian curriculum, we have these things called general capabilities, things like um, ethical ethical thinking, personal and social skills, and the whole point of them is that they are generic, and we have um, these standards that we are. Um, encouraged to attend to right across the curriculum. They travel through the curriculum. One of my favourite things is kind of setting up a little inquiry question with kids at the beginning, even of a lesson, and just saying something like, so, you know, this task we're about to do, we're we're collaborating, obviously. You know, it might be a group of grade four kids and it's a collaboration task. So I'll say we're going to be collaborators. That's the the learning asset we're working on. how about we, you know, might be something like last time we worked together, we, we struggled a bit with everybody really being involved and, and really um, participating. So how about this time? When As we go into the task, let's just think about that question. When people are not involved in the task, what can we do to encourage them? Or if we're the person not involved, what, we can, what can we do to, to be more involved? How do we get people to participate in the group? What's involved? The kids will often share a few strategies to begin with, then we off we go. We're into the lesson. It might be a, a science thing they're working on. And then every so often I'll just pause and say, hey, what, that question? How are we travelling with that? So we'll do a little mini inquiry into that skill of participation in that lesson. But then the transfery bit, at the end, it'll be, okay, so you're off to PE now. I'm wondering whether any of these things that we just did, do you think they might come in handy when you go into pair? Or when you go home, I always feel like I've nailed it when I remember to say to them, hey, when you go home, do you think any of these things might be be useful? Can you imagine? And when you come back tomorrow, let's, as a little bit of a home learning thing, let's see if we notice when we're actually doing some of these things you just figured out at home. And We talk about, and they'll they'll come back and say, hey, my brother wouldn't do the dishes, and I used that strategy that we talked about. So we get (laughs) these lovely, really specific, it's like I always feel like I'm kind of picking up that skill and going, okay, guys, let's pick it up together and come with me. We're moving it across. Here we are, and we're popping it into this context here. See? Looks a little different, sounds a bit, but same thing. All right, let's pick it up again. So we have to be quite, hang on explicit but um but we have those conversations all the time of course that was less that that wasn't super rapid but i reckon it was a bit better as an answer that was perfectly rapid um <laughs> i i i agree and, and you know like i mean it doesn't really make sense to me i, I so i understand the argument on an intellectual level 
I understand the argument that, you know, you need to be knowledgeable within a domain. And of course you do um, in order to be able to think creatively in that domain, say, or critically or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but also it's blatantly self-evident to me that that of course you know there are there, there are skills that are generic and that can be applied across different contexts like interpersonal skills speaking and listening skills e even you know like, like you were saying that inquiry is a stance and that that, that the stance of being you know like uh -huh. uh, like uh, yeah of curiosity or of humility you know these are yes. things these are things that that are in deficit in in society right we could do we could do with a lot more people who were a little bit more intellectually yeah. hum humble and who are a bit yeah. more sort of willing to entertain you know multiple perspectives at any at the same time and to be to 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 be okay with uncertainty and to be able to sit with uncertainty and to not always have to sort of to take a hard line on things these are certainly things that we would like to see more of in the world but some people take that disposition those character traits and these things are learnable you know i absolutely convinced that they are um and, and transfer them and apply them in all kinds of areas of their life. Like you say, from, from you know, being in a maths class to help to figuring out family politics around the, around the kitchen sink. And it's fun to notice it. I mean, it's not like we're noticing and naming and, and transferring explicitly everything because I think a big part of this work is about that it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's in the air or it's kind of, you're using the language ideally across the school and again I'm talking primary school so across the day if we're talking about things like persistence or curiosity it's the kids are hearing the language and they know that this is something we value we're ideally modeling it's kind of in the water it's on the water you know not literally but you know what I mean so yeah. there's also a degree to which aspects of it are just part of the culture that we build that we value and then the other aspect that maybe goes to some of the criticism is the importance of being aware and clear and explicit at the same time yeah yeah thank you That's um, it's great. fascinating stuff though it's it's so it's so interesting and it and when i started teaching back uh, so james back in 19 84, I'm from the olden days, when I started teaching, if I just listened to the conversation we just had, I would have thought, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> this whole area of learning, being fascinated about, about learning itself, kids coming to understand, talk about and use the language of learning, this this wasn't part of my practice and now is and it is and and I think you know Art Costa, Guy Claxton, people like that have really helped open that door and and we've kind of braided it into inquiry and it's just enriched it so much. So, so let's come on to to teachers and and inquiry as it relates to teachers. You mentioned earlier on when you were, when we were talking about what does what does inquiry look like. You said mm. it looks like teachers engaging in dialogue with other teachers. And again, yes. this is somewhere where something where collaboration comes in. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, on that. And I know you listened to another previous episode, the one with Kulvan Atwal, who yeah. um, just embodies yeah. this probably better yes. than any school leader that I've come across, this, this idea of Sounded really wonderful. taking professional inquiry and making it the beating heart of your school. Um, to what extent does your I know that you do lots of work you work quite intimately with individual schools still which is great um, but to what extent does teacher inquiry play a part in in your role and in your work a really big extent yeah it's um, I like to think that when we're gathered around the table to plan and sometimes that's with children sometimes it's just us um, I I see that as an act of inquiry so when we are um, planning, so we, I should step back a bit. In when we're working this way, one of one of the must-haves, one of the non-negotiables, is that teachers will be given time to meet on a regular basis. So at the very least, once a week, to the whole team, as in say it's the grade three and grade four teachers working together, so they might come together in a collaborative planning group and that that time is spent ideally not generating activities or you know you go off and do the literacy and you go and do the numeracy and you plan the you know it's not that it's it's we bring learning to the table we look at artifacts we talk about what the children are doing and ideally and it is ideal still developing in some places but we use that to inform next steps so that to me is an act of inquiry there are lots of important questions that we ask around the table yeah like what are we noticing what what's being revealed to us people will bring their um challenges with individual children's learning to the group so this this was again not part of my practice as a very young teacher you, you were on your own. You know, the most you might do is is uh, look at someone's um, worksheet that they were <laughs> on. The, you're, you're too young to remember Gestetner machines, but anyway. The yeah, I know those. Yeah. Is that I an overhead projector with a little that. tiny handle thing? Is that what you mean? Huh. Huh. Overhead projector. That's that. <laughs> It's advanced technology. No, these were yeah worksheets that had um, you you they had a carbon backing right. and you you wrote the activity on the sheet and then you'd put it in the machine, spin the handle around, and it would spit out twenty five copies of it that had um, through the you're copying using carbon paper. I'm not even – I'm feeling way too old. Anyway, <laughs> most you would collaborate would be at that machine while you were running off your worksheet. But now, now it is the expectation that you will be part of this team. This brings challenges because we're not necessarily trained to – we don't learn how to collaborate effectively with each other and we have to sometimes move away from this is the time when we just churn out a bunch of activities – but when it works, it works beautifully. So there's that. There's also in quite a few of the schools, in fact, the school I'm going to be working with tomorrow has a really interesting, it was the last blog post, I think it was my last blog post, They have each teacher has their own professional inquiry that they engage in throughout the year and actually not just the teachers, not just the classroom educators, the support staff, the office staff, every single person in the community 
has an inquiry that they're engaged in. Um, I have a um, – I, I love um, – Doing what we what uh, actually Ron Richhart uses the the lovely phrase of um, learning labs. So we do quite a lot of those where I or a teacher will go in and and teach, and the others will watch. Not not to judge. There's not like that. It's not the voice. They don't turn turn their chairs around or give us a score, but rather to inquire into. We'd use a lot of what are we noticing. So we'll look at the pedagogy, look at the responses of the children. So things like that. So learning labs, personal inquiries, collaborative planning. There's many more examples. Um, uh, Linda Kayser and Judy Halbert's work um, with spirals of inquiry, um, I think is also really, really powerful in this regard. They're, you should check their stuff out. It's It's fantastic. Canadian educators and they work around the world with engaging teachers in what they call a spiral of inquiry for their so that lovely kind of interplay between what are the needs of our students and then how might we inquire in order to seek improvement for those students and it's really powerful stuff so yeah it's a big part of the work it's a whole community it's not just the kids being the inquirers yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and this is something that I am involved in a lot. I work at the Institute of Education in London and um, and lots of the work that I do is around practitioner inquiry. I'm currently involved in this lovely project that where we're, we're setting something up at Cambridge University, um, which is going to be like another version of. So I made a, a website a few years ago called Praxis Teacher Research. It's not not the, the best named thing I've ever, I've ever created, but it's essentially like a free online journal where teachers can publish um, in research inquiries that, they, that they've undertaken. Um, and we're, we're scaling this up with, with Cambridge at the moment. And so I'm, I'm very involved in this work. And this is something that there's really good evidence for. There was, there was a famous sort of, there was a best evidence synthesis that was published by Helen Timperley. Sorry, I think my, if you can hear some weird noises, my dog seems to be having a, a bad dream in the background. <laughs> he thinks he's being chased. <laughs> he's being chased by someone. Is, is he twitching? Yeah, his his eyes yeah. are going. He's he looks like something out of The Exorcist at the moment. Oh, if Sorry, you need buddy. to go and pet him and say it's all right. I'm happy for oh. him to have a weird dream. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, the best evidence synthesis by Helen Timperley and colleagues, <clears throat> and and you know I've just done a search. If you search that document for the word inquiry, there's 127 mentions <laughs> of the word inquiry yeah. in the best evidence synthesis, which tells you something in itself. And there's, a, there's an excerpt from the foreword of that report by Lorna Earle, which I thought was worth just sharing briefly. She says she was particularly struck by having read these the findings in this best evidence synthesis, how they tally with the three principles of learning that were identified by a national research council in the US. And they are as follows. Number one people come to learning with preconceptions about how the world works. If their initial understanding is not engaged, they may fail to grasp the new concepts and information that are taught or may only learn them superficially and they just revert back to their preconceptions yep. in, in real situations, yep. which, you know, speaks to inquiry that's, massively. That's, that's 101 in terms of how we, how we begin an inquiry journey. The first element in the inquiry cycle I use is tuning in and it's about tuning in to the learner it's the learner's theories it's what they bring and unless you unless you explore that together unless you name it up 
it it doesn't it doesn't evolve yeah yeah absolutely and so that's a that's a strong strong uh, tick in the inquiry column the second one is uh, it says to develop competence in an in, in an area of inquiry people must firstly have a deep foundation of factual knowledge we've just spoken about that understand facts and ideas in the context of a conceptual framework and under organize knowledge in ways that facilitate retrieval and application um, and so that again speaks to the way that the the inquiry is not in any way like an anti-knowledge thing that the, 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 there's knowledge about around how to undertake an inquiry effectively and then there's the fact that this is an inquiry into knowledge itself um, yes. And then the third one says um, a metacognitive approach to instruction can help people to take control of their own learning by defining goals and monitoring their progress toward achieving them. Um, and so this is, you know, really good practice in terms of what makes for what makes for effective professional development. And at some point I had this sort of big insight where the complex intervention that we undertook for the, for the young people, the learning to learn curriculum that we that we designed like I say, it was a complex intervention, so it had many moving parts, but it really boiled down to these three ideas in practice, um, in metacognition, reflecting on, on our thinking, self-regulation, reflecting on, and by reflecting on, I sort of mean monitoring and control, those two things are really important, monitoring and controlling our thinking, monitoring and controlling our feelings and behaviours. Um, and then oracy was the third one about you know effective speaking and listening and then I saw at some point I sort of fell into the orbit of the Institute of Education and started thinking a lot more about teachers professional development and the light bulb just flickered on dimly one day and I was like oh this is the same stuff right this is what makes for effective teachers professional development is metacognition when we have that like you say a point of reflection where we're thinking about what's working well and what isn't working well and so on and where we've been and where we want to be how we might get there and all that stuff self-regulation where we're actually in the driving seat of our own professional development and we're not just sort of ticking boxes and you know jumping through hoops and dancing to the latest policy tune um and oracy right this is this is very very much rooted in spoken language and collaboration and communication and often i find that teachers you know, they come to a session from one week to from one month to the next and they say, oh, I'm really sorry. I haven't done anything since the last time. I've just been so busy. And you're like, oh, OK, that's fine. Let's sit down and talk about stuff. And then when they start talking, they say a whole load of new stuff that they weren't saying two months ago. And it's like it's the very act of speech that, that renders this stuff that manifests it into the world. People don't even realize what it is that's sort of swimming around in their unconscious mind or the preconscious or whatever. And it's the, the very act of collaborating and sharing and inquiring yeah. together um, that yeah. enables this to sort of this to come to life. And that, this is what effective professional development looks like. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's good for us as well, this stuff. Absolutely. Yes, we, we often notice the parallel ways in which we're working as educators and learning as educators with the ways we're supporting our children to learn. And I think the leaders that I really admire in so many of the schools I work in are leaders that really create a culture of inquiry right right across the school. So a culture of inquiry for their for the staff, for themselves and for the children. So, you know, I mean everyone is a learner, everyone is a teacher and you get this you can 
you can feel it in in the air. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it's a great way to work. Okay, well, thus concludes my forensic examination of Ooh. inquiry teaching. Okay, <laughs> I think I hair makeup. Where <laughs> I need to come and mop my sweaty brow. You'll no, be pleased was, to hear that, that you quite... <laughs> you passed with flying colours. I'm quite I'm quite persuaded. Um, Do I win the car? You you win a caravan. Yeah, oh, it's a second hand caravan. Right now, actually, right now, a caravan would be pretty great. They're hard <laughs> to come by. They can't travel overseas, so that's awesome. Might be a bit tricky for me to get it from London, but we'll I'll get my people no, to talk it's fine. to you. Yeah, I'll stick it in the post. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, so as you know, in the Rethinking Education podcast, having listened to some previous episodes, I like to find out about the, the life story, right, of the person that I'm talking to. Um, and so let's go back to the beginning. Um, and your own experience of education, to what extent was inquiry like a feature of your own learning or your memories of your of your like yeah early years, childhood and uh, and your later education? Wow. You know, it was a really lovely exercise to reflect on. I've had a few long drives lately and he's going to ask me this. What am I going to say? So it's been really interesting to reflect on I mean, I just think it's fascinating anyway. What What is it that leads us to become the teachers we become? You know, what is what is that? What is it that for teacher A means they're super comfortable with, with sharing power with kids, kids asking questions? Um, what? He's woken Sorry. up. Sorry, carry on. My son was supposed to keep him in the kitchen. He's just, he had one job to do, Kath, honestly. He's like, just keep the dog in the kitchen and go this out to school. This would not be a conversation across the airways <laughs> in 2021 without a dog barking. I'm delighted there has been one and it wasn't mine. Um, but, yeah, anyway, it is it is fascinating. And so, look, I, I, I was probably my school experience. I'm not going to be one of the guests that has something really interesting to say about their their um, education history. I was relatively unremarkable. Uh, I don't know that my interest in 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 inquiry was really born of my school experiences so much, although definitely. Year eleven and twelve, so they're our final two years here in Australia. Was when I hit that that wonderful thing where where you get enough teachers that really see you, and really, um, it's what you want. You know, it's, it's what I've wanted for my own kids, and and I've I've seen it when it's happened to them, and I remember it happening to me. You know that that idea of people that are your champion, and um, and I think certainly having that someone see my interest in music, writing, literature, etc. Um, so I, I quite I, I quite like school. Um, I, I I did sort of stupidly well at school. I, I came out at the end um, with one of the, the top marks in the state. And the interesting thing was that when I got that, when I did got this stupidly high result, I'd always wanted to teach and I and I, I cannot tell you the number of people, not my parents, but the number of people that said to me, oh, well, you're not going to do teaching now. 
I mean, you could do anything. Law, medicine, you could do anything. But but I don't want to. I want to be a teacher. So Isn't that, that interesting? Yes, it was really interesting. And that what was my first is... taste of that was my first taste of the, the way of the esteem with which the the uh, profession is held or in which the profession is held. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. I mean that the it's it's still true that in order to get into teaching you don't really need a super high, what we call an ATAR here. Not that I think that is actually the thing, but having taught at a university certainly wasn't the thing that made you a great, you know, education student. It wasn't about what mark you got. But nevertheless, that was an interesting moment when people were saying, I had the world at my feet and what on earth was I thinking going to be a and not even a teacher a primary teacher no less um and i'm so glad i didn't listen um and and so glad that my parents never put that kind of um pressure it was entirely up to me what i did yeah that's fascinating this is a little bit of an aside but but just to explore that briefly what do you think is behind that like there is definitely this perception that teaching is sort of is what you do when your when your dream doesn't come true. Right? Yeah. It's like it's like the yeah. backup plan. Yeah, why, I do why, teach why a few students so many... like that. Um, I don't know. Is it because it's not particularly well paid? Because it you know doesn't have the status? I I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it, regardless, I, I'm I, I'm thrilled. You know, if and I still think yeah. it's just one of the most. I mean, what a as I say, the people that mattered the most were fully supportive, but it was just an interesting, an interesting moment. But look, I did, I had a, a oh, sorry, go. Sorry, I was just going to say, so, so you said you already had this idea that you wanted to be a teacher. What, yes. When, when, when did that light first go on for you? I was born with it on. I'm one of those really? people. <laughs> I, was, I, I was one of those people. I can't remember not wanting to teach. I can't remember ever considering anything else, although as passionate musician and dancer and, you know, there was a little bit of that, but I taught that too, so I could still teach that. And I look, I was just one of those kids and there are many of them that would get home from school and line up their dolls and play school and um, get the uh, kids in the neighbourhood together to um, – form the uh, Kathleen Murdoch uh, School of Dance and um, and have classes in my house and put on end-of-year performances and make them have membership tickets and, I mean, ridiculous. But I think it was always something that I imagined doing. So I don't know what that is. I, I, I quite liked learning and I – and um, yeah, I don't think I knew what I, I – I mean – it's the, the kind of intellectual stimulation of teaching and designing for learning, even though, yeah, it was not really on my radar. But, boy, that's what keeps me there now. That's what I love about it as much as the practicalities of it. Um, but, yeah, so there's no not, – not, I don't think it was my education experiences. They were relatively – smooth I think what 
I think I was always quite curious. And so my interest in inquiry and having that disposition is probably when I was, I think I said to you the other day, um, that I think I've had a lot of interesting experiences kind of living, not quite living with paradox, but certainly um, holding contrasting experiences simultaneously. So born in the UK, all my family are in Scotland bar one cousin. Um, so everyone else is in the UK. Mum and dad moved to Australia when I'm very little, but I carry with me then and now a really strong sense of my heritage being mm. Scottish. So I've got this really lovely kind of I'm Australian and Scottish, not that you can tell from the accent. I was very <laughs> um Mind you, a couple of glasses of wine, and I'm quite good at it. Um, <laughs> but that's a different story. And the interesting thing is that when we moved from uh, the UK in, in the 60s to Australia, my, my parents were doctors. They were young young GPs. And they deliberately chose to move to one of the poorest parts of Melbourne in, in Victoria, where I live. So... Like think um, very early, you know, suburb, outer suburb, um, with yeah, really a, a resource poor place, and a lot of migrant families. We were one of uh, the only English speaking migrant family in my neighbourhood. Um, so really interesting choice. Um, so, but what I wanted to say, paradox. That's where I lived. And they're the kids I hung out with, but I went to school. It took me well over an hour to get to school and back every day. I went to school on the literally on the other side of the river to a private girls' school because mum and dad. So I had this, I had a foot in both worlds and never quite in one or the other. So I think when that happens, when you when and there's lots of other examples like that in my life, when you have this experience of not this or this, but this and this, I hope it gives you a relatively open mind and character. But what it gives you is curiosity because it's like, wow, this is what? It's entirely different. And how come? And what so I think walking the world with questions in your head started really young, whether it was that, whether it was um, having two polar opposite people as parents, one vivacious, confident, adventurous, impulsive, uh, problematic, substance abuse father paired up with painfully shy, conservative, strong Christian values, quiet, artistic, love the arts. But, but both GPs, both some common values, don't get me wrong, but but so different. And so growing up with that, it's just like, what? Um, it, yeah, and it keeps following me around. Even my very first school that I was employed in, we're still in the west where I in the area that I grew up, but it was the one suburb in the west of Melbourne 
that rich people lived alongside commission housing. So my classroom, I had the world in my classroom, socioeconomically, not so much culturally, but this really diverse group of kids, uh, one extreme to the other, in my very first school. So this this lovely, when I look back, I think I've been gifted these experiences of contrast, paradox. Um, I still love it. I still love that. I work all over the world and I love the, the um, what makes me curious is the differences and the similarities and the shared things. So I think maybe that's a little behind this, um, this dance, maybe. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've not really come across somebody who's talked about this before. And it seems like, yeah, there's a series of really significant things in your life that, like you say, are very just like absolutely divergent. Um, and so so there's this idea of significant learning that we, I know we've spoken about before. Like this seems to be a big one and it seems to be a series of, of significant moments that come out of these paradoxes, these sort of tensions that existed is there anything else that that stands out in terms of you know like if you as you look back thinking about sort of moments or ideas or things that have shaped you as a person or as either as a teacher or just as a mm. as a human being more widely well many but i i have to say having my my own children you know that that as as a teacher and as a person so but for different reasons so our 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 first child died at birth and that is the most profound experience of my life and the, and the most devastating and you know the the impact that that has I mean it's 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 a it's cataclysmic the, the experience but having said that I'm not one of those people that that think that any of that stuff happens for a reason or anything like that but what it does what it gave me at least was i think an even more acute sense of gratitude for actually gratitude for being alive gratitude for life but also when i'm working with children just oh just this this privilege and how incredible it is to be able to connect with with young people and that here are these beautiful living young people that are someone's precious child you know and it's something I used to say to some of the young teachers that I worked with when they get really grumpy about misbehaving kids so you know what hopefully somebody loves them they're somebody's precious child so I think there was something there that really just um amplified the passion for my work along, I mean, it's the reason I didn't finish a PhD. It's one of the reasons that I moved back into the world of classrooms and never left, even though I'm working obviously with teachers. Um, interestingly, in the second year after, which were, where I was grieving really deeply, I wrote uh, a book called Classroom Connections, which it was incredibly popular and I can't believe I wrote it in that year but it also reminded made me realize how lucky I was to have a job that I was passionate about and a vocation that meant that even though I lost my mother identity for a time I um 
I still had that. So that that was profound, and probably in ways mm. I don't even I, ways I don't even know. Um, but then you know the 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 I was you know I think fortunate to then a couple of years later have a daughter and then another daughter, and as you know, um, it can be the most extraordinary experience when you're also an educator you know you've got <laughs> I often joke that I've got my two um uh, personal longitudinal studies growing right up <laughs> and um and that it you know watching them learn and grow um being part of that I can't I can't s- stress enough that how profound that's been for me as an educator um, yes. Yeah, and and there's another paradox because when they were in secondary school, they'd be walking out the door in the morning, one with her um, alternative clothes and her guitar in hand and her long flowing hair and her pierced nose, heading off to our uh, local wonderful public school that had a fabulous music program, while the other, hair tied back, uniform on school blazer, laptop in hand, getting on the bus to travel to the private school that she really wanted to go to. And so I had they they couldn't have had more contrasting experiences of secondary school. So I did it again. <laughs> straddled straddled the world between one very much more progressive alternative and one quite um traditional. So there you go. That was interesting. Thought I'd throw that in, add it to the mix. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an incredible, um, I mean, that must have been, obviously, I mean, it's one of those things where words just fails you, doesn't it? Mm. Losing a child must just be mm-hmm. beyond, like you use the word, cataclysmic. And it's incredible mm-hmm. that this was a catalyst. Like you say, like, so really quite quickly that, that you that this helped you to sort of to deepen your appreciation and your understanding. I think so. It didn't. I didn't feel it at the time. I only know that, you know, it, what is, what's the phrase? You understand it only through reflecting on it. At the time, it just all felt like agony. But, um, yeah, I was grateful to have something to cling on to. Yeah. Mm. And, I, and I think it just, I don't know, James, I mean, the thing that happens, every guest that you've spoken to will have had some tragedy or trauma. We, we None of us really escape it. And I think as educators, you know, if you can use that to remind yourself that above all your job is to be human and empathic and to connect, you know, it's easy to lose sight of that, isn't it, in teaching? It's easy easy to get caught up in the panic of of what you've got to get through or I don't know, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not in the classroom full time, but I think just being reminded of our humanness that we're on this little globe, you know, together for a yeah, short period. And we want to exactly. make it as 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 good as it can be. Absolutely. And and it brings us back to that idea of kryptonite, doesn't it? That that like you say, you know, that there's so much of, you know, at some point I saw somebody write about social distancing and how, you know, social distancing was hard in schools. And he was like, the reason for that is that schools are like literally set up 
to be the opposite of that right like yeah. that it's all about human connection yeah. and 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 although that is very much at the heart of the idea and the idea of having you know, young people in different classes and so on um but lots of what we fill schools with <laughs> does sort of get in the way of those uh -huh. moments of human connection and that you know like talking to your table partner is often really frowned upon as a bad thing because that's you know you're talking off task and that you know that's an efficient <laughs> use of inefficient use of time wow. um and yeah. and you know we stop ourselves from from uh, allowing those moments of human connection and flourishing to really sort of take root um, and it's a real shame. And I think that we do lose sight of that. And it's lovely to hear that, to hear you using that language, which some people might, you know, like snort at that, that, that idea, you know, yeah, yeah, we're all here for this very short period of time. And there's a lot of suffering on, on this planet of ours. You know, like you say, lots of people are carrying around, you know, traumas and pain. And, and, um, and it's really important that we're mindful of that. And that we that we use use this time together that we have in schools, yeah. Where we have this, and it's like it's like the one point in life, you know. Like sometimes people say, "Oh, I blame the parents." Well, the parents should do this, as though parents are sort of one like homogeneous group <laughs> of people who you can just sort of tell them all off together, and everything will be better. Yeah. And it's like that's it's not helpful to blame parents for things, but parents themselves have gone through an education system, and education it's like the one thing that we all sort of go through yeah we have very divergent experience of it but most people yeah. even homeschooling there's this, still this idea of schooling of education of learning of personal growth it's the one thing that that sort of unifies everybody everybody's gone through this sort of cleansing hopefully what would hopefully be a cleansing nourishing flourishing process well, you um, but so often we sort of just seem to forget that that wider maybe slightly hippie-ish you know agenda item uh, in the in the desire to sort of to to maximize efficiency um there's a really interesting ollie lovell picked this up so so in the last episode ian gilbert said efficiency is the enemy of education yeah and yeah. and in a previous interview that that ollie did with the guy doug lamov he said that you know efficiency is one of the most underrated words in education so there's this real tension a fascinating yeah. conversation to be had around the role of efficiency and the role for for space and this is maybe another paradox for you kath because i remember when you when... Yeah, i can so totally hear how both of those things are true you know, go on. Talk to me about that. Well, it you know efficiency in that there's probably some things that we do that be that are you know ridiculously time consuming and unnecessary and peripheral to core learning, and we I, I don't know what the answer is, but that we could manage so much more efficiently than we do. You know, some some of the ridiculous lengths that some of the teachers I work with have to go through, even just to get kids permission to go for a walk around the block, you know, talk about inefficient. So some of that kind of heavy red tapey stuff, absolutely, let's pair it back. Let What can we do so that we can get on with our, our core business? And then I also, so, so if, you know, that we need to be more efficient there, but perhaps efficiency as in hurry, hurry, rush, rush, 
cover it, get as much done in as quick a time as you can, you bet that is that is the enemy of deep learning. Absolutely. And I work in primary schools, as you know, and I see the effect of that. I see the stress of that rapid pace. Come on, come on, come on, come on, on children. That is that is not the pace that children generally move at, you know. So it's yeah. I, I think the pace that I often that feels most efficient actually for me is in many um, preschool uh, settings. So teachers that work with three and four-year-olds that are much more likely to be cognizant of the rhythm of the rhythm that the child brings to the day rather than the teacher's, the adult's rhythm. And in that moment, surrendering to that feels more efficient than trying to, yeah, so I can see both things being true. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a related paradox to this because when we spoke last week, I remember you saying that that outside of your work with education, you're a really organised person. You're really yeah. sort of on it, and you're all about productivity. And yeah. then in the classroom, you're all about sort of like being in the moment, slowing down. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting paradox. But also, you know, to go back to the kryptonite thing, it seems to me that like maybe the the the, the mother of all sticks of kryptonite is the the, the learning intentions, right? That are sort of we, we look at the curriculum documents and we filter it down into schemes of work. And then we say, right, there's three things that we need to just hit in every lesson. And so it starts, you know, you write them up on the board and it's like today we're going to learn these three things. You know, and it just like just closes down all possibilities, uh-huh. and it's like this is that's like the classic sort of efficiency model, top down thing. We're just going to pour this into all these lesson shaped containers, and then we'll make sure that we've covered <laughs> all of those, you know, learning intentions. Yeah, um, but, but you know, it just kills. You know, and it doesn't even if you just stick a question mark on the end of it. You know, that's a start, right? Yeah, I was going to say that. That's that's my I I. I my understanding of where the whole kind of learning intention movement came from was some of the research that was really, and don't ask me to tell you who it was, um, but the research that indicated that oftentimes when people went into classrooms, and I think it was probably a lot of secondary classrooms, I'm not sure, and actually asked kids, so tell me about what what, what are you learning right now? And it, that kids were focused either on something really peripheral to what the focus of it was, or they 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 would suggest that the teacher be the one that get oh don't ask us ask the teacher we don't I don't know I'm just doing the activity, and so there was this whole thing of are we actually cognizant as teachers of what it, the the learning that we're hoping to be happening here? So I actually think it's got its heart in the right place, but you know it's it's become this kind of orthodoxy now, hasn't it? Of we must write we will what is it Walt we are learning to. And and I will know that you have been successful when you have met this success criteria. That, to me, is very anti-inquiry, anti-curiosity, but that doesn't stop me from thinking it's important to be intentional. So I agree. A a simple hack of a learning intention is to to turn it into a question. It's like I was saying before about that example with collaboration. Hmm, As we're engaged in this task, how about... We see we can figure out how to include more people. So what could that question be, guys? So we can even get the kids to co-construct that intention. Let's intentionally take a question into this session and to riff on on Guy Claxton's split screen notion, 
the idea of the split screen intention, which means we can be toggling between a question that relates perhaps more to the what we're inquiring into alongside a question that is more about the how we're inquiring. It's still intentional, but it's not simply simply saying we're learning it doesn't guarantee the learning's happening. So, but but posing a question and saying, so let's see what we can figure out about this together. Then it's both intentional and inquiry-based and collaborative. And if we're going to generate success criteria, um, well, let's generate it together. Let's say our question is what makes a really great opening line to a story as authors? Let's see, or as readers, let's see what we can figure out about this and kids going off and, and coming back with suggested opening lines and then together looking at what are some of what are some of the common devices that we're noticing that authors use that can generate some criteria that can then be used for the kids to use to um, self-assess and peer assess but I've not been the one that's told them I might tell them some but I've not told them what the success criteria is they've developed that through the inquiry so those elements are still there they're just we've just hacked into them and made them and inquiry-fied them, if you like. I love that word, inquiry-fied. <laughs> you used that last week. You were talking about the like Guy Claxton's learning power work. You were talking about inquiry-fying learning power, so that we're not just becoming more resourceful, but we're inquiring into or becoming curious about what does it yeah. mean to be resourceful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Right, let's move into the field beyond and look at uh, the big picture and see out of all of this paradox if we can start to think about what lies in this field beyond. Um, so let's start with positives. Yeah. Things that you like the look of that you see out in the world. And this could be the level of policy. It could be a thing that you saw a classroom assistant do. It could be anything, right? It's just stuff that you think is really good that you see out in the world of education that you'd like to see more of okay well I should I mean the lens that I'm I'm looking at these positive things through is very much it, it's I'm, I'm going to state now it's it's not really at that positive policy level um I've one thing I have learned about myself is that I'm most at home in the space between the policy and the practice and or, or perhaps closer to the the practice. Um, so my the things that I am seeing that are exciting and that I love. There's so many. There's some great stuff happening in schools. They're just you know there really is. There's some great stuff happening in schools, and perhaps we need to do a whole lot more reporting of the amazing things that teachers are doing. I mean, phew, and boy, some of the stuff that teachers have been doing in during the whole remote learning thing is just heroic anyway okay I'm going to say this I'm going to say the growth in collaboration we've talked a lot about collaboration for teachers but I when I look back over the years I see that becoming more and more and more 
it's stronger in schools that we're losing that kind of these are my kids and we're moving into this this is our community these are our learners stronger professional discourse you know and love this notion that now we gather around the table as a, a meeting of minds you know that we're so I, I think that that collaboration piece is really lovely and the and this is not really paradoxical but it's going to sound like it the other piece that I think is really powerful and that I'm particularly interested in at the moment it's what I'm trying to write about at the moment in a very overdue book is the the growth in in uh giving kids more opportunities to pursue the things that they are interested in in school so the personalization of um I'm going to say of inquiry I just think of it as personal inquiry there's there's still the stuff that we we inquire into together but the opportunity for kids to bring the things that they are interested in the things that they love into the school day and have even if it is you know one really great workshop a week where they get to inquire into their interests passions needs things they want to get better at so we we do this largely through the um the perfect vehicle for it is a play in the very early years and then that becomes a little more I can't think of the word structured form or whatever it might be as as probably for me that year three on it's kids start designing their own inquiries so um that's really taking a leaf out of the the wonderful late great Ken Robinson who really championed this didn't he when he said school you know we need kids to feel like they are in their element at school and I watched one daughter, one of my daughters, who had teachers that saw her light as a musician and absolutely nurtured that and gave her every opportunity to to grow that. She's now a, a working musician. And the other daughter um, who had to seek that outside of the school context, um, she was a, a dancer. And I just think if schools could be places where our, our kids could really have their light seen and burn brightly. But I just went into a negative. But it's a positive because I am seeing it more. Um, and I, the bug all around um, the place at the moment is agency. So that's the other thing that is really exciting is a stronger emphasis. I work in a lot of IB, PYP schools, and this is the in, in the primary years program, the learner agency is now the, the central um, kind of mission, I think, of of the that that program, and it's I'm having some great conversations with people about that. So uh, and and authenticity, that would be the fourth thing that I think is is growing. That that schools becoming uh, many of the schools I'm working with, and I'm very biased, but they are really committed to. Um, giving kids opportunities to inquire into things not only that they're interested in but are also that are in, that are useful and purposeful and that will make a contribution to the not just their lives but the lives of others. So projects in the school, projects in the community. Um, so a lot of that, that um, I guess, taking a leaf out of, you know, some of Ron Burge's beautiful work, that project-based learning, those authentic real people, real places, real problems. At this point in the conversation, 
Kath and I had a brief interlude while we discussed the technical difficulties arising from the fact that her ear pods had run out of juice. When we resumed the conversation, Kath helpfully recapped the four things that she sees as being really positive. In my four, I put my Edward de Bono yellow hat on and I've said, <laughs> personalization, agency and authenticity. And I, I get to see those, those flames burning bright in lots of awesome schools. Okay, right. Thank you. We're, well, we're going to put our black hat on now. Oh, maybe I should, okay. I maybe it very much, but I'm going to, go, I'm going to try my best. <laughs> maybe we should uh, call this part of the conversation the thinking hats. That would trigger the trads like nothing else. Um, oh, oh wow! I don't. Yeah. yeah. Gee. People, people hate the thinking hats. My oh. goodness, of all the of all the ideas, Ooh. I always used to quite like it. You can have a really good conversation using yeah. the thinking hats. It really helps you to think, look yeah. at things from multiple perspectives. But people really, wow, that that runs deep. People have had bad experiences, I think, with the thinking hats. That's interesting. So if I had some, I, I would love to talk to someone that that has got a you know, vehement hatred for them because I'd be so curious <laughs> as to why. It's really intriguing me because it's just a framework. It's just an interesting way to think about thinking from different perspectives. Anyway, yeah. there you go. I'm lots about what people don't like. Um, I think in in almost every case we're, we're talking about, about bad implementation, you know, rather than bad ideas. Positive than negative. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, right. Let's just set that aside. So, so black hat challenges. Um, what do you see as the things that we most need to do differently in our classrooms? What do you think are the and and what are the obstacles that stop us from achieving? You know, like and maybe just one thing. If I could maybe offer a suggestion at the start, one thing would be about about uh, like you said earlier inquiries no picnic that it's not for the faint-hearted so that's an interesting challenge about scaling up you know some people might say like one of the things that Adam Box has talked about for example about traditionalism is like it's sort of easy to do right it's sort of it's easier to do and if you think about this in a utilitarian way sense like the greatest good for the greatest number let's just do the easy things to do and then where we can do this more complex challenging you know collaborative inquiry-based work we should explore that but you know that's not going to be you know like implementable at a system level so there's a there's an interesting question around scaling up that might be mm -hmm. something that's worth pursuing possibly yeah i mean I don't know what i have to i'd have to think about that okay maybe we could come back to that if you like yeah look i think i i think that one thing we still need to work on uh is if if we are to invite teachers to use a more inquiry-based approach because of the, as, as delightful as it is, as I keep saying, it is it is complex and sophisticated and requires, you know, a, a way of seeing children, a way of seeing the curriculum, a way of seeing what it means to be a teacher. There's a lot, for many of us, there's an a lot of unlearning to do. So if we've got to do some unlearning and rebuilding and and really thinking carefully about a new role in contemporary times, which a lot of people talk about, of course, that takes time and that takes conversation. So I think one of the things that we haven't got right yet is 
if we're inviting teachers to do this kind of professional development, and I think it should happen within schools, um, then my ideal would be that teachers have much more time than they currently have to engage in those professional conversations, to design for learning, to reflect, to look at student learning, um, expecting somebody to work this way and not giving them any time within the school day to actually do it, to, to do the thinking that is required um, is, is not fair. So mm. the, the schools that I have experienced that do this really worked hard to give their teachers sustain, you know, block that they invest in, even if it means getting relief teachers in to allow them to have regular weekly sustained blocks of uh, collaborative um, planning, reflecting and thinking time. So I think that we haven't got the time bit right um, for teachers. Mm -hmm. it, it's not, you know, if, if we were just walking in and and doling out activities and following a syllabus and a script and if we were doing that, maybe you wouldn't need much planning time. But when you work this way, which is responsive and your and deep learning is your intention, you do need the time to, uh, yeah, to collaborate and design. Yeah. There's obviously an economic thing here, isn't there? And I've got a friend who's, who's teaching in Beijing at the moment, and she's talking about the incredible amount of time that their teachers get to, to plan lessons. It's like a half their day almost is spent planning lessons, yeah. um, which is incredible. Um, but yeah. that's obviously there are cost implications for, for scaling that up. Yeah. And that's definitely something in the name of so-called efficiency or as, it, as it applies to saving money, yeah. you know, like making it so that every teacher is teaching the maximum number of hours that they are legally <laughs> obliged to teach. Yeah, of course. Um, happens a lot and it saves money and you know we've had years of austerity here recently and that's you know a factor for sure um but i completely agree you know and w one way that we can do that is to work in a smarter way like for example you know there are schools that are moving away from doing any written marking or from doing a lot of written marking anyway so that teachers can reinvest that time in planning um so maybe the, there are some creative ways that we can work within the current constraints of the system to address that that's one of the biggest really and again i'm just talking about at school level and i guess it's at system level too but really you know valuing teacher expertise by providing that kind of time to to engaging those in that professional work i think is is really important um yes. I'm, i work in schools that have have made that a priority but i, I don't know that that's right across the board yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay, what else do we have in the challenges column? Uh, oh, this, I feel like almost every guest you've had has said something along these lines, but I'm going to say it, we've already mentioned it, but just the challenge of um, the either or, the the polarisation, the conflict, whether it's around, you know, uh the science of reading or direct instruction or I I feel like we talk about inefficiency, that the the time we spend squabbling about it and, and occupying these really extreme positions, if and oh there's a hippie warning, but I do think that that we we could get better at 
the kind of conversations with each other to get to the field beyond. Um, I don't think um, social media platforms have helped. Um, I, I think the the we've all, I mean, everyone knows this, you know, the kind of the heated, d d not really debates, are they? They're sort of point scoring stuff. I don't. I'm, I don't. I'm allergic to all of that stuff. I'm. I'm really happy at the moment that I, the only moments of debate I've had of, on Twitter have been really respectful. Uh, I guess I've. I've perhaps cultivated a bit of an echo chamber. I don't know, but I think for the our capacity to to find ways to um, be more sophisticated in our dialogue around our differences would be something we could work on. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. And and that's really largely what I'm hoping that this podcast can go some way to addressing, right, is to, to you know, and I love the hippie warning. That's another, I should have called the show that, hippie <laughs> warning. Um, there is a there is a field beyond this, and it's really fruitful. And that's what like some people have said about like what's interesting is that what's essentially a progressive, um, you know, that the very idea of rethinking education is kind of a progressive idea. And lots of the people that I've had on would either be characterised as progressive or would be ha quite happy to sort of to wear that badge themselves. Um, but. Um, one of the you know one of the things that people really responded to about having having Adam on the show is that is that they were like this was a really fruitful discussion yes. that took place beyond and it's not that sort of punch and Judy thing and, and lots of people have opted out of the of the of the of, of engaging in debate on social media for that reason that you say that it's something that's just very sort of point scoring and and like playground politics, this sort of like sniping and like subtweeting, you know, this phenomenon where people are just like having like underlying conversations, but not tagging people in that they're talking about. And it's really unpleasant. And, um, and, and it, I think it is, a, sorry, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say, you know, right at the beginning, you were talking about um, philosophical inquiry, philosophy for children. And, you know, people saying, Ugh, why do we need that? That's why we need that, because we're not very good at this. We're not very good at being able to hold ourselves in that difficult space of disagreement and bringing, and I know I've said it a million times, I'm just going to say it again, bringing a curiosity to different ways of thinking, seeing and being that might mean we actually find we have more in common than we do different. Now, that's what I love listening so to, to your uh, conversation with Adam, I, I really enjoyed those lovely moments where you you you're you're you were more similar than you were different, and where and and both of your ways of being with uh, with each other, I thought that was a great model, James, of the kind of conversations we need to have a lot more. I mean, it's, mm. it's easy to be dismissive, you know, it's easy to say, oh, those traditionalists or oh, that fluffy silly inquiry stuff that doesn't work that's easy it's harder to have a uh, more nuanced and respectful conversation but it's a thousand times more satisfying surely and that's what our i mean you know what the world needs 
Like, <laughs> just a little. And, and, and kids get really good at it. Our young people are amazing. They're amazing at it. When you give them that opportunity and and we talk about the skills of respectful dialogue, you can see six, seven, eight, ten, you know, the, the, the young people around our kitchen table over the years that are, I think, even more inclusive and I'm really excited actually about this generation. I, I think they're amazing. But anyway, so that. We yeah. Can, that. They don't like boundaries, kids, do they? I've noticed that. <laughs> like they don't like sort of like this idea. And it's one of the things that's really fascinating around the stuff that's happening around like gender politics, that like like younger younger kids, like they just do not have a problem with the idea that somebody has got no fixed gender, for example. And older people are like, what do you mean? This is making my head explode. It's so good for, you know, for, you know Steve, my, my husband and I, we, we've got a, a 20 and a nearly 23-year-old. And they they teach us so much at the moment and will pick me up on my language and I just it's so it's such great role reversal. I'm like, wow, okay, sorry, you've really got to help me here. I I don't get it. You know, I've had quite a few of those moments lately and I'm so grateful for them. So again, that's that's really about that kind of power sharing, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And and one thing that I'd really like to get to um, more is to have more of like granular conversations around what this synthesis or what the field beyond looks like, right? You, you were talking about how explicit or direct instruction can be, you know, incorporated and is... is, is um, it's not my go-to, but it's in my toolkit for sure. Yeah, of course. And sometimes you know, like you have to explain stuff and it's yeah. being really being really good at that is really important. Well, and- that's what I was going to say. You actually have to learn that you you know, if you dismiss that as a, even with a strong inquiry stance, you're poorer for it. It's important. It's part I mean part of my, I'm, I'm a teacher. Part of my job is to where at the right moment in time to say, I'm going to show you something, I'm going to explain something that might help you take your learning a little further. And we see this all the time. We see it in, you know, I'm working with Matt Glover uh, on the on the weekend and he's a, a wonderful educator in the field of young children's writing. And just watching him confer with young children about their writing, you see this very deliberate, very respectful inquiry stance with some clear teaching points that at the right moment and in in a way that is respectful and valuing of the child, you know, that just-in-time teaching, it's really important. So I'm not mm. dismissing any of that really, but it's but but my at the same time I don't want it to sound like anything goes either. That's important, isn't it? You you can be inclusive to the point where it's like, oh, we just love everything and everyone and every method. You've got it's got to have your principles too. And I bring a strong set of principles about what it what you know, what I guess I believe about learning, about children, about the role of schools, about um the, the relationship with parents, all of those things. So you've got you've got that, and you don't want to fall below that line. So you've got to stand by that. But but it's not to say that there aren't a plethora of um, approaches that can sit above the line. Yeah, 
Yeah, thank you. It's, it is dead important that we get that right. And that there was a really interesting piece that I read a while ago by Tom Sherrington, who was saying about how of all the classroom that he goes into and everybody on Twitter is sort of railing against, you know, groovy, progressive, you know, things. Um, but actually what he sees more of the like the problem in the day to day classrooms is not is not the groovy prog, as he describes it. It's yeah. the bad trad. He's like, he's like somebody who's up there trying to teach in an instructional manner, but finding it hard to do that well. Um, and so that's obviously a, a really key part of the toolkit but so are these other things as well and how we move to like at a system level and at some point I don't know whether it, I don't know if it's a policy thing I'm, I'm quite skeptical of policy as a vehicle for, for change just because policies themselves can be subject to change right it's like the the new education secretary comes in and gets rid of the old thing and introduces something new and like policy is a top-down idea and i think that there needs to be something that's not necessarily bottom up but it's sort of like involving people at all levels of the of the of the system to think about some stuff from multiple perspectives and thinking about what does a rounded toolkit look like you know what does it what does a school look like that combines really well inquiry methods with explicit instruction methods with philosophical inquiry with all these other kinds of things um in in an in a, in a sort of proportionate balance right so that you know so that we're addressing all of these genders simultaneously because it doesn't have to be this either or thing but the actual practicalities of how we get to that field beyond i'm still a little hazy on i think it's still about i always i get a little bit alarm belly when i think that when people start talking about a balance because then it's like oh well we do a bit of inquiry and when we do a bit of of um uh, you know, t- traditional um, instruction, I- I'd say for me it's like, no, I'm unashamedly, oh, I just had a moment. I remember Adam having this moment with you in his podcast where he started to talk a little bit about, well, collaboration can be good sometimes, and then he went, whoa, 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 hang on, but no, but my bottom line is I, and he he kind of stood by his principles. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing. I'm saying yes. However, I stand by that I bring a staunch, you know, it's a, it's, my stance is an inquiry-based one and I bring an inquiry approach to my work but in my toolkit includes um, those, those strategies but, my, but it's not like I've, I'm, mm, what am I trying to say? I don't want to say like I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to have a bet each way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're standing, you're standing in your truth, I think you would there say. Now you're the hippie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Having hippie off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got, I've got loads where that came from. Um, it's a guitar so... in the there, I've noticed that. You want to just... Uh, Break out a bit of kumbaya for the. <laughs> That's actually my sons. I figured out that the the, the world has got enough guitar players, <laughs> so it doesn't need me to to add to that. Um, yeah. All right. This is fascinating stuff. So, is there anything else in the challenges column that you have in mind? Mm, only what lots of people say, but I am going to say it because it, I came across it in a primary school the other day, is just our mindset and helping families, children, everyone's mindset around 
for example, primary school isn't about getting ready for secondary school. Secondary school isn't about getting ready for university. I'm just going to talk about primary school right now. When I often ask, you know, if I'm asking children, why do you think you're learning about blah, blah, blah? I still get a lot of kids saying, well, we'll probably need to know it in high school. We'll probably, oh, I think, in high, especially if I ask older kids, you know, grade five, grade six, oh, I think it's probably because when we go to high school, and they say, but what about right now? How is this useful and important to you right now? And I'm also asking that same question of the teachers, you know, to hear that same question. And I think there's still this, you know, there's that beautiful, I wish I could remember the name, someone, Taylor, that beautiful quote about, you know, childhood isn't getting ready for life. Childhood is life. And that that sense of the learning matters now mm. for and these children have a right for the learning to make a difference to their lives now and they're capable also of making a difference to the lives of others now. So this idea of school as somehow getting ready for something as opposed to enriching and being powerful, a powerful context for learning for now, um, that's something we could work on. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I like it. That was something that Tim Taylor mentioned. I don't know if you've listened to that one. I think that you would really like that episode. Uh, remind me, was he's a mantle of the expert. Yeah. Yes, I heard. Yeah. I, I haven't. They're long, James. They take <laughs> it's a lot of walking. You've done, you're doing better than uh, <laughs> any of my previous guests. You've, you've listened to quite a few. But he was talking about Do yeah, Dorothy Hethcott, who yeah. sort of came up with the uh, the man to the expert approach. Said that you need to be careful that that school doesn't become a waiting room. Oh, you know. Yeah. I wish I'd heard that phrase. That's perfect. Yeah, and it yeah, was, it's and nice. more frightening is when kids think it is. And when you think that kids think it is, yeah. you think how remarkable that they are as willing to be there and as compliant and passive as they often are if they think they're simply doing this because maybe they might need it in a few years' time. What a, you know. So, no, school, schools, of course we want schools to be places where we've got a thirst for learning for now as well as what might happen later and that, we want our kids to emerge from school with a hunger to learn. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing our job in, you know, however, whatever stellar mark they might get, it's that and the hunger to learn. And that, you know, that wonderful work of, of Susan Engel who, who writes, she's written a great article I think in, in um, Time magazine recently and, you know, she says this, this she, she's an expert on curiosity and she said that is the thing. We just need to keep making sure that schools keep that curiosity alive because they haven't and uh, much to our shame. And, you know, we've all seen it. I've watched it in my own kids. I've watched it die off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you see it from a really young age, you know, like I know that you do all this work around young people questioning and like the research that's been done on the numbers of questions that children ask um, and the way that, that, that school school sort of um, just makes them all conform to certain ways. Yep. I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been. There's a guy um, over here, Phil Beadle, who was talking about this incredible house that his 
that his daughter had drawn before the three weeks before she went to school and it was ridiculous it was like made out of clouds and there was unicorns and it was like you know gravity didn't apply in this place and it was just like this mad uh, invention and then um within about a week of school she was asked to draw a house and she just drew like four windows and a door and a chimney on the top and it was like this is how you draw a house um and there's definitely you know a big dose of that right like schools seem to do that and it's really unfortunate that 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 curiosity um and that that desire the the natural the natural stance that young people have to ask why right it's the classic thing isn't it that kids always say why is this um, that that just gets beaten out of them. Beaten out of them is is an emotive phrase, but for like it's a metaphor. For whatever reason, it gets sort of it it, it disappears disappears. Whatever it is, it well, goes we know, away. We know why. We know we know you know that it's it's about. I mean, Susan Engel's research is really illuminating around this. But you know the the expectation of compliance of the emphasis on you know, getting it right, um, the, you know, I want to say the, the fact that maybe teachers themselves don't bring their most curious self to the classroom. We know that one of the biggest factors is the role that the adult in that, I'm talking younger children, the role the adult plays in, in modelling, in being the curious person and, and for kids to see you, you know, you've got to be able to say, wow, that is amazing. Do you know what? I don't, I, I've got no idea, but I'd love to find out. Or just talking about something fascinating you've seen on the way to school or and resisting the urge to say, I'm now going to tell you all about it, but to say, this is so interesting, let's see what we can find out together. So we, we kill it off by not modelling it, by the rush of school, um, by a kind of expectation of, passivity the kind of dull the dullness of the school day um and yet i we, it doesn't have to be like that we know that school can be a place that those classrooms can be habitats for for playful inquiry i mean the work of the 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 staff at the opal school in portland is worth checking out i mean they're champions of playful inquiry and and i i um you know, I think, and not just with younger children. So I think that is one of our big challenges is is uh, Brooks and Brooks said it many years ago, you know, schools need to be places that keep the spirit of curiosity alive. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of my main concerns, I think, with with this sort of big move towards traditionalist teaching. It is an efficiency model and it's done with the best will in the world and with you know especially with uh, one eye on the on the disadvantage gap or even both eyes on the disadvantage gap um <clears throat> but my concern is like what happens at the other end of that when you've got a teacher and a school system that is so sort of um top down and like micromanaging and it's like this is the most efficient use of time you're going to do this intervention here and now you're going to do this past paper and we're just going to get you over the line um, to get you the best set of results that you can possibly get as though that's sort of like an unquestioned good um, and actually what you know what happens when kids leave the system and we know what happens actually lots of people never pick up a book for example 
lots of people are made to feel like failures and they, and it takes them years even like the most incredible people like Kate McAllister who you know another previous guest um who I've worked with very closely over the years and you know she like is a force of nature she's like you know been out in refugee camps educating people she set up the learning skills curriculum that shaped my life and so many others she's now in the Dominican Republic doing all this stuff and she felt like a failure for years because of the experience that she had at school mm-hmm. and it takes decades sometimes for people to throw that label off if they ever do yes and so the impact that this stuff has on young on young people and their sense of hope for the future their sense of what they could go on to achieve there's just like such a, a lot of waste i think that that comes out as a, as a really unfortunate side effect of this very well-intentioned desire to sort of just get every possible grade out of every possible exactly. kid um, it seems to have this like it's like we're sacrificing the future at the altar of the present. There's a, there's another little hippie phrase for you. You know, I think we do have a moral imperative to really examine that. I, I was reminded of that from a you know parent point of view. Interestingly, just just the other day, my youngest daughter has just started a, a degree um, in in health sciences, and you know she was a she. Just fine at school. She did, she did really well. Um, she could play the game pretty beautifully. Anyway, she was sitting there doing some something for for uni, and um, I, I happened I passed and said, "Oh wow, look at look at those notes or something." I don't know. It looked all very organised and impressive. And uh, I said, "Oh, is it is it the same sort of stuff that you did in biology? You know, in in year twelve? And she said, "Well, it is, but this time." I'm going to understand it. This time I'm going to understand it. I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, well, I mean, and she did super well in her exams, right? She said, I, I, I'm not just going to get it. This, this time I really want to understand. And so this moment of, for her, at least that aspect of her schooling wasn't about understanding. That wasn't what the purpose was. It was like get the good grades, learn it off by heart. And now that she's learning much more independently I guess um so it was just an interesting moment I don't want kids to wait to their finished school to think that understanding is important understanding should be what we're working towards from the get-go Okay, so let's put our yellow hats on now, and uh, and see if we can fix some of these some of these challenges um, or make some headway into them at least. Um, is there anything that springs to mind that you think when you're thinking about? So you talked about the dichotomy, the sort of either or us versus them thing, um, and also this this problem that we were just talking about about um, the way that that we lose we lose the ability to hold that curiosity and to keep that flame alive to life beyond school um these are these are not insignificant no. things to fix um but they are fixable and I'm, I'm pretty sure um have you got any thoughts on how we might go about that um well i look i think a lot of it does come down to the opportunities that that teachers are given to um, 
uh, I'm going to go back to that notion of the teacher as inquirer. So I think if we position more of the professional learning as a process of inquiry in itself, then not only are you learning stuff, you are learning about learning because you're engaged in a process that you might then invite your your children to experience. So I, I think more of that, it, a lot of it is happening here actually, but that embedded, I, I love being invited to go and work in a school over a lo long period of time to be able to come back and just support the teachers in strengthening their practice by inquiring into their practice. And then, of course, there's lots of supplementary things we do. We read and we do a whole lot of other things. But I think that um, if, if, I guess, at system level there was more attention paid and resources given to the kind of professional inquiry that can happen within the school, um, I think that was wonderful. Um, that we we respect and honour the professionalism of our teachers by providing more of that that time and those opportunities on the job, not necessarily something you've got to go and keep doing after you know after hours. Although I think that's an inevitable part of the job, but that there's more attention to learning about teaching while you are teaching. Yeah, I like it, and that's so 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 so. It seems like that might be the end of the thread. There's there's this whole like tangled set of things, right? And they're complicated because it's simultaneously, you know, political and it's around, you know, things like economic and social disadvantage and and opportunity and also, you know, things like self-regulation. And it's just like there's this huge like emotional behavioral aspects of that as well as cognitive and what people know. And it's it's like confusing and and, and very knotty. But it feels like maybe teacher inquiry is the end of that piece of thread that actually if we pull that, then all of this other stuff can sort of unravel and open up and and each teacher can sort of create what makes... And, and what I love about, about that is, you know, if people haven't listened to it, I really urge you to go back and listen to the episode with Kulvan Atwal because yes. it's like the, what he's done at his schools yes. is like just it's such a, an amazing example of how when you do that, everything else sort of gets taken yes. care of. Like the kids' results go through the roof and the teachers don't want to leave. They don't have any problem recruiting teachers. The school's oversubscribed and it's like a win, 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 win. <laughs> There doesn't seem to be any downside. He really valued his staff, and and I work in schools with leaders that are like that, that are that really do value the le teacher learning and foster, as I said before, that the hot. It's about we are. I mean, I'm, it's, I'm working with a leadership team tomorrow that have managed to do this beautifully. That they they consider themselves an inquiry community. It's an inquiry school, all the way all the way through. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely possible. So it's supporting leaders to build that stance and then, um, you know, give it, giving that opportunity in that respect. And I love that metaphor you've got of all the tangled threads. And I just had this image of the opportunity going back to this personalisation piece, the opportunity for each teacher to find a little end of a thread 
and and inquire into that and kind of you know untangle that bit. It doesn't have to be all of us doing the you know it's it. In fact, we're probably better to be able to engage in inquiries that are relevant to the needs and interests of of ourselves and the students we're working with, and then contribute that back to the group. Um, but instead of it being a big tangle, it becomes a nice, neat kind of braid, right? It's, it's all connected, <laughs> but it's not it's not tangled. And I think teacher inquiry is a really a really powerful. It changes changes the nature of how we see schools, doesn't it? Schools as, mind you, again, this has been talked about for decades, but schools as communities of inquiry, where it's not just the children that are doing the inquiring. It's it's all of us, and um, that then it's a, you bet it's a good place to come to work. Yeah, it is a good place to come to work, and that's something that I really like about this kind of work as well. Is that teachers they really like the, the the programs that we run at the Institute of Education, and also stuff that I do on the side. Teachers often want to, and schools want to come back and do it year after year. The same teachers, and there's no extrinsic motivation. There's no like master's level accreditation attached to it or anything. It just opens up like the intellectual side of the profession, um, which can sometimes be a bit repetitive, can't it? And, you know, if you've been around the track a few times and you know the curriculum inside out, um, you know, it's not that challenging. The material that you're working with isn't that challenging. But to open up these questions around, like, what is learning? You know, what is human development? What are, what is involved here? And what's um, what what does resourcefulness look like, for to use that example that you gave earlier? Um it's it just it becomes fascinating you know yes. people really people really like it and the sort of the agency that's sort of intrinsic within yes. the idea of inquiry that this is something that you're in the driving seat of people we know from research in the world of workplace learning that or, or just the world of work generally that you know it's that the thing that people value more than a pay rise they just want a little bit of autonomy over over what they do like it's, it gives people job satisfaction like nothing else mm-hmm. oh, exactly and you're giving and again you've got this lovely mirroring haven't you of the the nurturing of uh, of agency for the child and simultaneously the nurturing of agency for teachers and we often say if we're not going to if we want our teachers to value and support that in their children they need to feel that they've also got choice and voice and autonomy in in their learning so i think it it yeah it does it does boil down to that for sure mm, thank you um Okay. Is there anything else in uh, in your mind when you're thinking about how we can how we can make things even better than they already are? Because, like you say, I do think it's important to recognise that there's loads of really good stuff happening already, and lots of the narratives, especially in the mainstream press, lots of the narratives around schools and teachers, it's always critical. Um, but there's we're incredible, you know. Teachers and educators are doing incredible work all the time so it is important to recognize that but how can we make it even more incredible mm-hmm. maybe it's by doing a better job of sharing those stories um i think uh i think that's something we perhaps still don't do as well as we could um and maybe that's on people like me too to who who are lucky enough to be out well I used to be in the world. <laughs> I will be again. But <laughs> that when we're when we're engaging with the public, when we're talking, you know, I think that talking about the, those 
those positive stories, I think that's important just in itself um, as, a, as a bit of a counter to, to some of that negative press. But I think, yeah, look, you know, I I must say, remember listening to an interview with Jane Goodall um, a few years ago and someone said to her, oh, you know, so would you say that it's really important to, to you know, think, think global but act local? And she said, no, I actually think you get the most change even at a global level when you think local and you act local. And I think that resonated with me even though I do do global work, I guess in terms of why I'm not sort of offering grand policy system level ideas is because I feel like my work, I've chosen to think local and act local and and. Um, so whenever I'm thinking about making it better, I'm thinking it, do we do it school by school, teacher by teacher? You know, it's, it's for me, it's about continuing to get support individual school communities to um, be the best that they can be and to, and to really kind of, even when I'm in a school, when, when a principal might say to me, oh, you know, I want you to work with these people because I really need to get them on board. And my response is actually, can we start with a coalition of the willing? Can we start with the people that are actually really excited about this work? Because that's where we're going to get the traction. And I think if we can be also looking out for those those leaders that have got this mindset and supporting them and and people like Judy and Linda that I mentioned before have got these lovely networks of really amazing empowered leaders that are leading strong inquiry. So I think that's how we do it. You know, we, we well, that's, that, that's my, that's where I can respond best to that question is kind of mm. think local, act local response. Thank you. Thank you. I like it. And um, so, so to, to wrap this conversation up, I think it might be nice. So, so you mentioned Jane Goodall there and I know that you've spoken previously about like the, the relationship between inquiry and the natural world and the importance of, you know, like bringing animals into the classroom, say, and it seems to me that, that, I mean, this is obviously like the biggest challenge that we face, right? This is something that Ian Gilbert spoke about, about like if, if we're not, if we can't get our heads around how to fix climate change, then, you know, it's all over, right? <laughs> like to not want to put too fine a point on it. It's like the biggest challenge that we, that we face. Um, and I was left in, in that conversation, I've, I struggled to sort of to articulate it as a question, but it was essentially like, what is the role that education can play in contributing to, to this solution? And it seems to me that inquiry could play quite a significant role here. But I just wonder if we could just to close it, to close this circle and go back to where we started this conversation. What do you think about that as an idea and, and how can inquiry help us to to address, you know, by, by thinking locally about, you know, the local hedgerow, for example, how can this potentially help us to think, you know, um, about being more solution focused on a planetary level? Wow. Talk about saving the most challenging question to the end. Well, not the most challenging, but certainly, well, maybe the most important question to the end. And I thank you for it. Because I think you know, the first thing I want to say is I actually think we've got a moral obligation to support young people in inquiring 
into this issue, obviously we've got a moral obligation to the planet. But also, you know, if you think about it, in well, when I think about inquiry-based pedagogy, I really resonate with this idea of in, of it being the pedagogy of listening. And having an inquiry stance is about listening and observing and responding to what we hear. And you don't have to listen to young people for very long to hear that this is an issue that concerns them. I mean, obviously, we've seen it right across the world, haven't we? Um, I work with, as you know, with primary children. So one of the things we regularly do is, particularly our older primary children, sort of year three to year six, we regularly invite them to share with us what they think is important for them to learn about and inquire into. And again and again, doesn't matter where I am in the world, again and again, this is the issue that that comes up. So at the very least, if I'm going to respond to the interests, needs and concerns of the students I'm working with, and again, I feel like I morally should, then of course, this needs to be part of what we inquire into. And actually, I think it it's also a really good argument for a strong um, curriculum that helps kids inquire into some of those big concepts, you know, in, um, like the science concepts of interdependence, um, natural cycles, cause and effect, you know, biological diversity, and those more, if you like, the kind of humanities concepts like global citizenship and equity and resource distribution. Now, that might sound all very highfalutin coming from someone that works with primary students, but actually they are exactly the concepts that we use to drive the way we design journeys of inquiry for our students. So trying to build this strong conceptual understanding that helps sort of set the foundation for, for understanding this issue that they are so concerned about. But here's, you know, when it comes to inquiry, though, that's it, knowing it and understanding it's not enough, is it? Like you can know something, you can even understand an issue, but it doesn't necessarily lead to any any change or action. And here's where inquiry, I think, has such an important role to play because this is a pedagogy that says we are not just helping kids learn about and know stuff. We are supporting them and coaching them to learn to think in critical, creative, reflective ways and really build that skill set that surely that, you know, we need for, you know, creative solutions to these issues of our time. I mean, you know, I've been speaking a lot, haven't I, about curiosity and wonder and in that beautiful kind of aesthetic sense, but it's also about Inquiries about developing a culture where kids get sort of searingly curious in a critical way, like asking questions about the information that they encounter. And that's something we really try and help them learn to do better. Do I just take it, you know, for, for what it is? What questions do I need to ask this information that I'm engaging with? I mean, we teach year two kids about triangulation, right? Here's this information here. But how do we know that this information is reliable? Let's see if we can find it somewhere else and somewhere else. So I think helping kids develop those skills of an inquirer, of a researcher, um, it really augurs well 
for both the you know the present and the future and I guess that the final thing and maybe this is as you say kind of circling back to almost where we began but you know I talked earlier I think about the how powerful being in the outdoors connecting with nature is as a provocation for inquiry I mean I know no better way to get kids curious than engaging them with the natural world now you get you get kind of a a lovely extra thing that happens when you do that. Not only do you get kids really much more curious to want to find out, you get obviously it's good for our well-being. We all we know that, but you, you tend not to want to do anything about something you don't care about. So, I think engaging kids in inquiry through connection to nature has this bonus of building this relationship with nature. And when we've got a relationship with the natural world, we start to care about it. And when we care about about it, we want to look after it. Um, Yeah, so I think there's so many reasons. But I think inquiry as a stance and as as an approach that really empowers and nurtures agency, surely that's what we want for our young people. And, you know, this is, this honouring these kids for, they're, they're incredible. I mean, I've just been working with um, some young kids today that, again, just reminded me of their capacity for curiosity and um, critical and creative thinking. And I also get to hang out with a lot of young people in their early 20s, and they are remarkable. If anything gives me hope for the future, it's spending time with young people who I think probably in spite of a lot of their education rather than because of it are incredible. I mean, just imagine if you've got all of that capacity and energy and creativity and you created schools that were stronger communities of inquiry, just what power that that could unleash, I think, um, with our kids. Um, it's a it's a cliche, James, but I'm going to end with a little cliche here because it's a great one and it's that our job is not to educate kids for our past but for their future. And as much as it's said, it's worth just dwelling on every so often, isn't it? Am I educating my kids, our kids, for their past, for our past or for their future? And I think inquiry is more future focused. Yeah, thank you. Wow, what a, what an answer! And a rant. That was a rant. Again. <laughs> no, really. I'm. I'm. My, my thinking is uh, really moving forward because of this conversation. Um, there's there's a few things that I'd like to to pick up there. I mean, firstly, just the thing that you said at the end is very resonant of something that Ian Gilbert said in his conversation about this idea that we need to throw children out of the cave, right? That we, that we're that we're in the cave. Yeah. These are our problems. That we need to prepare them for a world that we're not going to going to be a part of, right? And so we need to be focusing on their future. Um, and so I totally agree. And I, I think that there's two sort of simultaneous lines of of development in my own thinking that's sort of happening through this conversation one being just about obviously the power of inquiry and the importance of inquiry i love that phrase uh, children who are searingly curious 
Um, and it's a, it's almost a cliche, isn't it, to point out that young children ask why all the time and then they stop yeah. when they get to school. But it's, um, yeah. it, it's uh, you know, it's really sad that that happens. And it doesn't necessarily happen in alternative educational settings. If you talk to Kate and some of the stuff that's happening at her school, you know, there's no coercion there. <laughs> there's no, you know, the children go to the toilet when they want they go to the, get some lunch when they want. Imagine that. They go and help the gardener for a bit if they need a little bit of break from learning and then they come back and they just totally self-organise. And it sounds like it would be chaos, but it, it doesn't have to be. No. Um, and, and as the opposite of this notion that education is something that is done to That's you, right. yeah. which is very much my concern that it's just this sort of top-down delivery thing that is done to you and you need a bit of that you know you need a bit of Mm. you know like experts teaching as I've been saying all along (laughs) you know that doesn't mean it's not all or nothing it doesn't mean just because you bring a strong inquiry stance to your work that you don't have the opportunity as a teacher to explain to to model to demonstrate to coach but it's just a you know a whole lot less telling no, telling is not necessarily teaching. It's often not teaching, is it? Yeah. It's you know. So inquiries about you know it makes me. I said that was the last thing I was going to say, and now I'm going to say something else. But <laughs> it, you've just reminded me of this lovely quote. I'm not going to be able to remember it properly, but Peter Johnson, whose book Choice Words and his other book Opening Minds are amongst my most thumbed through on my bookshelf. And Peter Johnson has this lovely quote where he says, you know what, if we are always making decisions for kids, we're deciding what they're going to learn, when they're going to learn it, how they're going to learn it, who they're going to learn it with, where they're going to learn it, how they're going to show us what they've learned, etc. If we make all of those decisions for them, um, what we end up with is kids that understandably don't see themselves as figuring out kind of people and what we want is to grow children. I mean, I work with very young children who absolutely see themselves as figuring out kind of people. You know, I've got this, get out of my way. Yeah. I can figure this out. And we just want to maintain that, right? We want kids and, and you know, for those big issues, we need a we need an entire community of people who see themselves as figuring out kind of people. You know, I have the skills, the capacity, the agency, confidence the belief that I can figure it out and that if I don't know how to figure it out I know what to do to help myself figure it out and um, gosh if we can produce that out of school we're doing pretty well right yeah of course of course and it's obviously the biggest issue that we face as a planet and and so that the, the set, so so the first thing that I'm really getting a grasp of is just like just how important it is to have a strong strand of inquiry that runs throughout the whole thing and I've argued for a long time that professional inquiry should be the cornerstone of teachers professional development that also is something that's very much done to us um that's a whole other conversation and but the second thing that I'm really coming to grasp which is almost ridiculous that I'm having to have this realization but it's it's just the importance of of including um the environment in 
as much as as, as far as we possibly yeah. can in everything that we're doing in schools and this was yeah. something that was in our thinking when we first started our learning to learn curriculum it was very eco-focused it was all about recycling and you know not wasting things and using natural resources and also learning about the planet and that was something that Kate sort of suggested right at the outset and it's something that she really seemed to get um and then somehow it got lost from my thinking along the way but this problem of how we can fix the planet as it were like I mean there's no <laughs> there's no tougher nut to crack right and all of this work that I've been doing around implementation science yep suggests that like the the first thing is that this is not a carbon based problem it's not it's like that's a part of it but it's a people problem yeah. we need to yes. figure out how we're going to bring yeah. people with us on this journey and and i know mm -hmm. that over the years i sort of have not been one of those people who's been involved mm -hmm. in that question i sort of just find it depressing to read about the climate change and the latest sort of statistics on bushfires and wildfires and the melting permafrost and all this and mm. I haven't been engaged I have not been on the bus as it were um mm. but uh it doesn't matter about me the question is what can we do to get people on this bus and I feel like I can I can sense that I'm stepping onto it and also a lot of the conversations that I've been having with other people in the mighty network people who are involved in alternative yeah. versions of education it's often very eco-focused things like yeah. forest schools and uh, oh the, yeah yeah so so this is really interesting it feels yeah. like it's all starting to come together yeah isn't that nice and it, and it really you know so I think sometimes people are uh, rightly concerned that that you know, a little like we were with the kind of nuclear issue in the in the seventies and eighties that that we're going to fill the kids' heads with doom and gloom, and it's absolutely not that at all. It's it's empowering, and it's can well again from a primary school perspective, it's very much about just opening up the opportunities for kids to bring that natural curiosity to their learning, and so much of it is directed to the natural world, and just. We used to talk in the environmental education movement a lot about learning in the environment, learning about the environment, but also learning for the environment. And for me, the for is about building your capacity as a researcher, as a collaborator, as a thinker, so that this care that you feel and this connection that you have to the environment is you can do something with it. You know, that's that I know what to do when I don't know what to do thing. Um, and it's, and as I say, it doubles as as just a wonderful context for strong engagement. So, um, yep, I'm all for it. Mm, thank you. My pleasure. Right. I think we should probably draw a line under it. I could feel like I could talk <laughs> to you for another three hours at least. Kath. There's so much to oh, talk about. Same. But for now, I would like to just thank you so much for your time My and for pleasure. sharing your thoughts. Is there anything that you would like to to ask of our listeners or to share with our listeners before we uh, draw this to a close? No, just um, uh, if you're interested in, if this is, if perhaps if this is, you know, either lit a little flame for you or you thought, oh, actually I could find out a bit more about this, then um, certainly, you know, my website might be a starting place for some, some of you, particularly if you're interested in the uh, inquiry in the primary uh, or elementary area that might be a good starting place but gosh I'm on all the um, social media platforms and there's a, actually an amazing community of educators interested in 
sustaining kids' curiosity, agency and creativity out there. So there's plenty of wonderful material to tap into. Mm. So go for it. Be, be inquirers. That's what I'd tell them to do. <laughs> get your inquiry on. <laughs> <laughs> inquiry for your life. Yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> there we go. That's that's going on the poster. Put on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you, James. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.